Hello, and welcome to the Moving Pixels podcast. I'm your host, Nick DeNicola, and joining me, as always, is Eric Swain. Hello. And today, we are going to talk about a game that's kind of a long time coming, at least for us. I've spent the past month plus playing through this game to get to it, and it's been a bigger beast than I expected. We are here to talk about Planescape... No, not... No. (laughs) (laughs) We're here to talk about Torment, Tides of Numenera. The spiritual successor to Planescape Torment, but not actually connected, but... Whenever I had to look up something for this game uh, online, I always started by typing in Planescape and then reminding myself, no, no, just type in Torment. That's all. (laughs) But yeah, this is... I've been trying to think about how to actually structure this podcast because this is a beast of a game. Like, it's very dense, both mechanically and narratively, in any which way a game can be dense. And so before that, I wanted to start with, like, my final thoughts has just as kind of like to act as a thesis statement, a guide throughout whatever else we discuss. That sound good to you? Yes, I shall wait for the end to give mine. Okay, good. Okay. We'll bookend it. So I like this game, but I did have not, not a lot of issues with it, but I think the whenever there's a plot that gets drawn out like the longer any plot thread gets drawn out the weaker i think it becomes and so the overarching story is is kind of weak and confusing and like by the time it got to the end i had forgotten a lot of characters that i'd interacted with in the beginning so i didn't recognize when they came back and ultimately it it felt it didn't feel as strong a backbone to this game that it could have been but all of the side quests are just absolutely fantastic. Every quest where it's just you talking to people and kind of exploring a single location for an hour or two is really, really tight. And there's so much in this game that is like high-minded, high-concept fantasy ideas. Uh, like a changing god who jumps from body to body, or an endless battle that... Uh, Things like psychic warfare in alternate dimensions. Like a lot of this real abstract sci-fi fantasy mixture of ideas uh, that's really cool to think about and explore. But what the game does when it's at its best is when it's exploring like the human consequences of those high-minded ideas. What do individual people think about the endless battle? And for you personally, uh, like... How do individuals relate to this changing God and the bodies that he leaves behind? Like the the individual consequences and the kind of human level drama that results from this high concept fantasy is when the game is best. And that is most apparent in the side quests that sort of span several hours at most. But when it gets drawn out over the course of, you know, 60 hours or so, it... um it loses a bit of that because you go so long between plot threads. And there's also a lot in this game that I felt was missing mechanically. Like, I I went through the whole game without ever really using ciphers because I was never quite sure if they were a one-time use item or not. And I was always paranoid that I would use it and lose it. 
and I would wish that I had it again. And so I went through the whole game almost never using them. And there were just other things like that where I felt, oh, this mechanic needs to be kind of explained a little more. This character could have done with a little bit more explanation. But, you know, those are the things get that get dragged out. But when it does end, things usually end strong. And the side quests, each individual story, is always so compelling and so intriguing and so thoughtful and so nuanced that those are what really pulled me through the whole game. Is I wanted to see what the next side quest was. Not so much how it all ended up. Although, I did want to see how the main story completed. Because it does get really interesting. But it takes a while to get to that point, I think. So, how, do, how exactly do we want to approach this game? So, Because the I intro, think... I feel... Honestly, the intro... Like, that intro quote-unquote dungeon is probably the best place to start yeah i i think the places that stand out to me mainly i want to talk about saga's cliffs in the blue because those are kind of the places where i think the game really coalesces uh saga's cliffs is a good example of stories that begin and end really strong and then larger narrative threads that aren't properly explained and kind of leave me wanting and then by the time you get to the bloom, you know, there's the the threat of side quests being good continues. But then the main story, things start to happen that makes it much more interesting and compelling. Uh, so I guess jumping into the beginning, it does have a real strong beginning because it starts with you falling. Just falling from an incredible height, just plummeting to earth. And as you do, you just kind of choose what do you thinking about in this moment are you focusing on the horizon are you focusing on the the feeling of wind rushing past you like what exactly is going through your mind as you are plummeting from like such great heights and it's a it's a cool intro especially because it feels like an ending since you just smack into the earth or you smack into the planet not so much the earth but you you have uh, more importantly from this fall is that you it isn't just you wake up your consciousness becomes awake because as as you'll learn throughout the game the changing god creates a new body and he's to keep himself alive and he and he puts his consciousness into it leaving the previous body which becomes known as a cast off which at that moment spawns its own consciousness yeah and it which becomes is, its own person which is interesting from a larger point because he doesn't create new bodies it's like he takes over old bodies no no he creates Does new he? bodies because there are moments in this game where other people recognize you and like in saga yeah, cliffs there's a guy that's like hey that was him. you that you was checked out a book from me yeah that was the changing god walking around in your body it oh okay, wasn't okay you that was he created the body he's you for a while and then he whenever it suits him he ditches it and a new consciousness spawns from it hence the term castoffs yeah and you meet and there are a lot of them because he's been doing this for centuries and none of the castoffs die well they can die through very specific means but as one of the mechanics of this game is you can die and you will go into your brain space and then when you leave your brain space you'll just stand back up mm -hmm. you cannot be killed like one of the puzzles in this game is drinking a drink that will kill you, that would kill anyone who drank it, and you have to drink it to just, like, solve a puzzle. Yeah, and there are certain times when you have to go into that mind space, and mm -hmm. so there are times when I'm going about the world thinking, damn, how do I, how can I die? 
I need to find a way to kill myself. And it's a leftover from from like the. I, I, we were going to say this to the end, but really, there's no really way to talk about a lot of the design choices of Torment. In that, because it's a spiritual successor to Planescape, they took a lot of. They tried to identify what made Planescape Torment Planescape Torment because they wanted a spiritual successor. It's how the game was marketed as. It's how it was kickstarted as. And honestly, Torment is just a special game, especially for Chris Avalone, who wrote both, that he wanted to take a crack at something similar. And, well, how do you do it? Well, you're an amnesiac immortal in the first one who can't die, who whenever he dies gets back up. You're an amnesiac immortal in this game, but for different reasons. And that's pr- and that's where the the uh, the premise conceit comes from, like the the torment of immortality. Well, it, it's that's that's actually worth because like some other critics have brought this up, and when you're playing it, it's just like there isn't a whole lot of torment in this game titled Torment. That almost seems like we needed a signifier to connect it back to Planescape, and since we don't have that setting anymore, it's the second word. Yeah. It, Which I, I I can understand that. Although it does seem like there is a lot of torment, but it's not so much... Yours? Yeah, it's not directed towards you. It's more like what you direct towards the world, or what the others direct toward the world. It's and really, that's kind of getting into the end game, but it's like, there's a lot of horrible stuff going on in this world. Mm-hmm. It is a tormented world, even if you has... Uh, the most recent cast off of the Changing God, you don't really experience much of it firsthand, or like it doesn't really hurt you. I think um, mo- I think mostly I- the argument is that in Planescape, it's like you are learning a lot of the shit you did, and that it's your immortal soul that's on the line that's been tormented through the endless series of forgetting. Here, it's more like. You are a standard player character, blank slate, who is now coming into who you want to be, but the torment is held by other characters, and it's not really yours. Yeah, so, it's almost like what's what the changing god has unleashed on the world. Or I'm even like, the changing god's own personal torment that led him to do all this. Yeah, yeah. But that that's just – I guess that's just a, a point of semantics because both of us have – played this game without having played Planescape. I actually like asked Twitter when I first picked it up last year, do I want to play this one or should I play Planescape in case like one the experience of playing one effect has an ability to affect my enjoyment of the other? Of course, and then I got responded to by one of the developers who completely misunderstood my question and said, "Oh no, these have these have no plot significance to one another whatsoever. One is not the sequel to the other." And I said that wasn't my question, but I'll play the newer one, I guess. And from what I've been able to understand from people who have played both, that is probably the better thing to do because I wouldn't have enjoyed it as much in having to compare it to this giant. Yeah, to kind of uh, instead of standing it, let it, letting it stand on its own. Yeah, because otherwise you keep comparing it to its, you know, supposed predecessor to see, okay, what did they change? What did they keep? What is thematically consistent? What is different? And I remember at the beginning of this year when we did our Game of the Year episode for the 2017 year, I talked about this game and there were just so many little things. Like you, you, you remember I was like breathless trying to explain all these weird things that were going on yeah, and, how they yeah. could af- and how 
just like the design of various encounters could go in many different ways. And I mentioned like you can get off a guy from a very, from like having his sins being unraveled out of his body, like a ticker tape, except the ticker tape is his intestines. And you save him by getting, by rousing the mob up, the crowd up into a mob frenzy until the, the magistrate just lets him go. You know what? This is not worth it. Let him. That, that quest was one of the things that got me to to put on my list and play it. And what I love is that you described you being able to, you know, get the crowd up into a frenzy and get the guy off. I almost did it, but I failed to convince one dude. And so I had to work in a completely different way to try to solve that quest. Because, like, the suggested way is you go to this other part of the city, you try and convince a magistrate to give you a form that you can fill out to do something else. Oh, it's just a horrible sequence of red tape bullshit. (laughs) And I I just love it. It says, you know what? It's a – and it's like Tiber. That's the guy that gives you the quest. He later becomes a companion. He said, you know what? I got this. (laughs) I just convinced everyone to start just being an angry mob. Mm -hmm. He doesn't thank you for it. And no, think... no, the guy, no. Especially once you learn more about that, it's like, oh, Tiber, you don't have the best of goals. But <laughs> that's that's one of the things I like about this game is that there's sort of these these layers to everything. But yeah. I guess to we'll get to that that quest specifically. Um, yeah. Let's let's actually because after you fall and then you're given base the basic uh, idea of what's going on of why you're in your head and what the sorrow is, which is a a monster. It's like this eldritch monstrosity made of shadow and goo that has been hunting the uh the the uh the changing god and the last castoffs because for because this because uh, most people think it's because of the sins of the changing god has been conferred onto his quote-unquote children and they're suffering the consequences for it and we later find out that's sort of true but there is actually more to it and once you get all that sorted out, you wake up and you're in a reef that you crash landed into near a city. And two people, uh, Algern and Kelestage, come in and they ask you, are you basically, oh my god, he or she is alive. Are you okay? And you ba- and then you get the basics of like party companionship and tutorial before you have to choose because these two people hate each other. Which one do you want to be with? For, as your mm-hmm. companion, because you can only have one, and that basically is your introduction to Sage's Cliffs. And so this is this is one of the areas that I took issue with in the beginning, because at least for this for this intro part through Saga's Cliffs and like up until you reached the Bloom, up until Millavest, which is sort of like the the midpoint of the game, you're driven by uh, when you fall, you land on this thing called the Resonance Chamber, and you. You destroy it because you fell from, you know, the stratosphere. Yeah. And so your goal is to find someone to help you rebuild this resonance chamber because a voice tells you to has your falling. And I kind of all throughout Saga's Cliffs, I really took issue with that just because it felt like a real weak plot thread to kind of be the main story. Like, what is the resonance chamber? I don't really know. Like, why do I want to build it? The voice told me to. What is the voice? I don't know. Do you trust it? I don't know. Should you listen to it? I don't know. And so there was a lot of, like, 
why am I f- doing this stuff that this random ass voice told me to? It doesn't really make any sense. And so, y'all, I want to I want to defend it on this part. It is a problem, but I think not for the reasons that you're going for. It's that you don't actually have a lot of information. Like you don't even know what a resonance chamber is. So the first quest is actually find out what the hell a resonance chamber is. Yeah. And actually, no, you start to you start to see if you can find someone to fix it. And when you find someone who is capable of fixing it, he says, OK, I can fix it. What is it? And you realize I have no clue. I have no idea what this thing does. <laughs> but it, it really becomes the entire section, like when you're stumbling about, becomes basically a way of gaining your quote unquote sea legs as to existence, because you, you're stumbling around. You don't know a lot about like you, the player and the character are in sync on this. You don't know anything about the world. You don't know anything about who you are because you haven't existed yet. And you're, you actually do meet like you can actually meet like the cult of the changing God who want as much information about him as possible because they worship the very idea of this God who can change and create life as such. And they basically, and they basically tell you, well, tell us what you can. Oh, you're new. Let's shep. And there's a bunch of people who will try and give you advice or shepherd you. Oh, you're new to existence. Welcome, welcome. Sit down and let's talk. So, so this is that cult is one of the one of the interesting points in this game where you compare, you know, the player to the player character in that we both don't really know what's going on. So when I talk to the cult. And I'm like introducing myself. I told them I am the changing God. <laughs> and I convinced them of that. But in convincing them of that, I also convinced myself of it. <laughs> and so there's like a good several hours in this introduction where I actually thought that I was the changing God until like I told that to one of the characters and they're like, yeah, I don't really think that's true. Yeah, you can convince a lot of people that you are the changing god, and there's nothing to not make it so. It's 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 a this game is very open about the concept of like identity in that respect, in that you are who you say you are. Because you meet like we've said, you meet a lot of castoffs. And who are these castoffs? They are every they castoffs are merchants, they are slavers, they are assassins, they are bums. They're they are soldiers. There is one ca- they're castoffs who have started very strange cults where you eat corpses to to maintain uh, knowledge because apparently that's how certain magic can work in this world. And they are just all over the place. They choose. It's very it's very um I don't know. It's very existentialist in that way where you where they've taken it beyond simply like you are who you decide to be to a very literal level of placation where yeah you are exactly who you you are whoever you say you are including the changing god what's interesting is that i've actually in watching other videos and other people critique this apparently one guy did that and that but his uh tides change basically his alignment changed so drastically through his other plays that when that option was presented it came with the codifer lie next to it so it was no longer the truth because because his view of himself has changed so much and um i think we should start like talking about like how it tries to mechanize various per- portions of this existentialism yeah well first i want to say um this idea of you know you are who you make yourself to be one of the things i really like about the game is that it does explore that idea in th- this question of how do these castoffs relate to the changing god 
how do they view him? Because, you know, everyone calls themselves children of the changing God. But some people, some of the cast-offs, see the changing God as a God. Because when he leaves, he will usually leave behind some skill. Like, each cast-off has a certain uh, ability, a certain capability to them. And some of them believe that the changing God is a God figure who is sort of going around seeding these special people throughout the world for some larger grand plan that he's going to execute and change the world. And it becomes an actual religion. And God figure was like, yes, this is my creator, and I want to be of use to him in any way I can. And then other people are like, yeah, the that fucker, he abandoned us. Why should we follow him? There's and no they are, to. And the best part is they're led by who's known as the first cast off, the first body the changing God got rid of. And it's and so, of course, you have like the schism, the literal schism between those who follow the will, the quote unquote will of the changing God, even though they've never talked to him. It's more of an ethereal will of what they think he wants and the defending of this plan versus the first the first cast off who is no, I know what he's up to and we don't matter to him at all. And those that follow the first cast off and you which is I didn't actually realize because you throughout the time in Sedge's Cliffs, you keep hearing about something called the endless battle. A and several characters you talk to and one of your party members is a direct uh is was directly affected by this, where they are just fighting for eternity. For centuries, this single battle has been going on and neither side has been gaining ground because both have machines that can reverse time. So if they lose parts of the battle or make strategic blunders or get one-upped, they reverse time, recalculate all their infantry and their formation so it doesn't happen, at which point the other pre- – and they – and inflict severe loss on the other side to which they reverse time and then redo the whole thing. And it's just – strategic re basically re they're basically two player characters re like hitting quick save and quick load yeah, they're against one another <laughs> and and one of the things i think is cool is i got this late in the game but i got this item that kind of allows you to revisit memories of other people in the past mirror casting yes and it was a memory of a soldier the first cast off side had lost their reality writing machine that's one of, i think that's like the only mirror like one of like two mirror casters you have to do that's plot critical all the is others are plot, like i didn't think that one was plot critical because it's i think it is is because that's how you reset the endless battle so you can actually get in there to do the to find where mastoff has gone on who is the guy who built the resonance chamber and so on and so forth okay but, or it's like, but anyways um yeah my point is like that memory gives you a human size view of what this weird ass war looks like like what does it mean when two sides can rewrite reality like what does that actually mean and has a strategy like it creates in the no man's land between these two sides there's like a tornado that just of uh, a reality reality tornado. yeah and so if you step into that tornado you can come out in a different reality and so when one side loses loses their machine you are like well I can either try to infiltrate the other side and destroy their machine, or I can go out into this no man's land, into that tornado, and try to pop out in a different reality where we still have our machine, and then use it there. And that's a really awesome memory because, like I said, it shows you 
what what this weird abstract idea looks like in practice. Like what what does it mean strategically and tactically to rewrite reality in a war? And on the one hand, you have like, okay, these are different types of fighting. There's spearmen fighting other spearmen, or in this case, it looks like tanks fighting tanks. And these guys, you have two wizards fighting each other. But then you enter another reality where the two sides are sports fans, and they're cheering in this huge stadium over what looks like a soccer game, each one just holding <laughs> banners, and that that's what the battle has resulted in this reality. In another, it's like a it's like a swimming it's like a competition between frogs and insects. and witches at the thing just like chanting as the as the fight goes on it's it it has just it's really weird especially but then of course you also have like uh people like tiber who who eventually will reveal his his uh participation in the war where you die one day you see your lover just die in your arms and then you blink and they're alive next to you and you got to retake that hill again some days we took it, some days we didn't. Some days we were blown to pieces, and it didn't matter. We just kept hitting it over and over until our conscription was up. Mm-hmm. Like that that human-level uh, drama of like, what is it like to be in a war where you're fighting for the same hill every day and you have to watch yourself die, or maybe not every day? And And you don't even get the sick satisfaction. It's over. We were victorious. Nope. Undo it. Yep. And, so... <laughs> Yeah, uh, Endless Battle is is a cool concept, but uh, you want to go back and talk about the systemization of... Of existentialism. Yes. Where, like, I didn't, like, part of the brilliance of this is, like, because there are the tides, and when I played this, I didn't know how many tides there were, so whenever I did something, it would pop up, you have increased this tide a little amount, or you have increased this other, and a new, it says, huh, I'm getting a lot of blue and gold, and then randomly, indigo would show up, or red would show up, so it's Oh, and it just like the mystery of not knowing how many there were. Of course, now I know there are only five and it's a little disappointing. Not that the fact that there aren't like the – of course, you can't have infinite colors representing infinite different viewpoints and philosophies, but still. And they basically correspond to, as someone pointed out, the Magic the Gathering color wheel. You have blue, which is basically around philosophies of enlightenment and intellect, and gold around empathy and charity, red around passion, impulse, and emotion, silver around admiration, fame, and somewhat self-interest, and indigo, which is interested in justice and and equality. And the things you say to people, the decisions you make, or how you solve quests will increase various levels of your tide and whichever tide is dominant is basically how the world views you and or what you project to the world this is who you are making yourself out to be of what you're interested in the most of the game i was blue and gold how about you uh i think i think that's probably me i don't know what i ended it has but i do know throughout the game i got a lot of blue I got a lot of indigo and I got a lot of gold because I was a very conversation, persuasion, perception driven character. Oh, no. You can still like earn other colors just using – Oh, yes. But like whenever it came to you know, uh, a tide changing decision, I was like, "Uh, tell me more. I want to know more because – you know, I started this game confused as hell. I didn't know what the tides were. I didn't know what Numenera was. I didn't know what the title of the game meant. Yeah, the, so, the, 
the nature, the gamer instinct to tell me more. Yes, and so I got a lot of blue because of that, because I was like, I don't, oh, you're a slaver. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then, of course, the thing is, I thought you would have gotten a lot of silver because you kept claiming you're the changing god. and you. I, I, I mean, I sort of did that up until, like, maybe halfway through Saga's Cliffs. <laughs> And then I was like, maybe I'm not the changing god. And so then I, I didn't do that. There came a point later on where I could say it, and I chose not to because I sort of realized – I realized the truth that I wasn't. Uh, you were still trying to grapple with the basic circumstances. Mm-hmm. Like I said, in the beginning, I genuinely thought that I was the changing god because I convinced the cult. Oh, so you misunderstand like the basic premise of the story at the beginning. Yeah, I was like, I don't, I don't know. They, they seem to think I'm the changing god. Maybe I am. <laughs> you know, because I don't have any memories, so maybe I am. But then as you go through and you learn more about the changing god, it's like, oh, okay, maybe, yeah, okay. And, of course, the tides are actually something even more mystical than simply philosophical outputs that, like, your charismatic personality yeah, well, presents because to the, the world. Yeah, because the tides... They're not just a mechanic and a system for the game. They're an in-universe thing. They're like, like the, the tides the, exist for all of these characters, and they know about the tides, and they talk about them, and they use them to their advantage. But using them is kind of is is it kind of magic? Because Numenera is a setting where basically the difference between technology and magic is nil because it's so advanced. Yeah. So it, it took the, me. It took me – I eventually found a dude who was like Mr. Exposition when it came to Numenera, and the way he described it, Numenera is any – basically any artifact of the old world because th in this world, there are like – it seems like there's countless civilizations that it's rose and ninth, fell before. It, this, is like, this is like the ninth world. Well, so they call eight. it the ninth world, but they even say – that doesn't necessarily mean there were only nine worlds before it. It's just like that's the nine that we can kind of easily identify, but there could be more. And Numenera is basically anything left over from those worlds. It could be a machine. It could be a location. It could be a weapon. It could be a piece of art. Like all of these things are Numenera. Numenera is essentially an artifact. And uh, a lot, and of course, mechanically, these all have like benefit. Most of them have benefits that you that have like statistical bonuses or just defensive, like percentile things for your defense, or any other sort of basic RPG thing that you can imagine. And and uh, this system is basically you have three stats: you have might, speed, and intellect. And I'm guessing most people who play this at first go for intellect because you soon realize most conversations revolve around using your mind. Mm -hmm. And then during level up, you can choose what stat to increase, either your stat or these other things where you can get new abilities like new attacks or new passive abilities. You can increase skills. So when you try to do a skill check, you're better at that. Or you can increase these other two things called edge and effort. Because whenever you get a skill check, you have a percentage chance of how – of like your base based on your skills and what you know of how well you can succeed against this. And then you can put effort into it, which is basically taking a point of your ability score and lowering it for temporarily or at least till you take – go to sleep. Yeah, yeah your stat pool. So like your, you can have 
you you have like five points in your intellect stat pool and maybe two in might and speed. And so if you get into a conversation and you want to persuade someone of something, you might have like a 50% chance of doing it. But if I want to try harder, I can put two points of my intellect stat pool into that and increase it uh, to, 90. to like 90%. And edge is – and but the thing is you increase – if you level up your effort, that means you're capable of spending more to do it because you're actually limited to how many points you can spend. Yeah, so like sometimes you can only put in two points of effort, then you can put three, then four, and so on. Edge is an ability that allows you to spend that – gets you that extra effort bump without actually having to spend the ability point. Yeah. And late in the game is almost feels like you're cheating. Yeah, late in the game, I had like five points of edge and intellect. But oh my god, some of those later skill checks, I still had to put in a bunch of points for it. Yeah, it, but at that point, you had like 14 intellect. And four, you had 14 intellect, you had five edge, and it's just like, oh – I just spent two more points and it's a hundred percent. Some of those things I was like, the edge was so high. It was a hundred percent without spending anything. It was like, it was almost feels like cheating, which kind of, which is a little unfortunate because the way the game or the, the game presents itself early on is that even failure can lead to interesting outcomes. And like I, now of course the in, impetus for any gamers to keep succeeding or you can't progress but the this game actually tries to do something else where if you fail you get something different like there the basic idea is that in the very first area of the reef there's this very sharp looking plant that has something shiny in it and you can use your speed to try and dart your hand in grab it and pull it out if you succeed you get whatever numenera that was in there if you fail the plant pricks you and you take some damage and then one of your skill points increases permanently. And it's like, oh, that's an interesting f- – I got something. Even, even though I didn't get the thing I was looking for, I got something for failure. Like the world reacted to me failing. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know how often you can actually keep that up, especially near the end where success – you almost have to succeed. But like the game – because the fact you can't die, like failure – isn't exactly the same thing. And in- yeah. And th- there are several points too when if you fail, you're allowed to try again, but you have to kind of take a point of penalty. And so you have to spend even more effort to, to try it again. But I, I really like this, that, that system just because of how it turns the idea of effort and trying hard into an actual numbered RPG mechanic. It's a cool way of of taking an abstract idea and massaging it into a very concrete set of rules. And that's not to say that this game doesn't have challenges. Like there is, there are some sections where it is it is really hard to get through it, like the quote unquote proper way. Like uh, there, in the neck, in like after after you leave, Sa- you there's Sage's Cliffs is a huge area with so many side quests and eventually you'll find the information and the one side quest that will actually lead you to a main quest. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. As I was going through Saga's cliffs, like there was a point after several hours where I started following the, what was it? The white, the white killer, the white death, the white death. And I realized, Oh wait, this is the main quest. (laughs) Because I, I'd just been following side quest after side quest, and then, you know, the White Death 
it felt like a side quest. Because but well, I was like, oh, they're, oh wait, it, they're all is... placed at the same importance. Yes, they are. And event eventually, you talk to a ship captain who will then allow you to get on the ship. And then there's another point where, like, uh, do we want to? Like, I don't feel like you can get around this not talking about, like, the – we've been doing it without talking about the companions in any sort of detail. Yeah, I was just going to say I want to back up and talk about you can the companions. Get, because you get all of these companions in Sagis Cliffs because when it, when you leave Sagis Cliffs, the first big area, uh, whoever you take with you, that's your party for the rest of the game. So not necessarily, and I actually had a guide that I, I checked periodically. And one of the things that I stumbled across was an item that let you change parties. Really? And I made sure to get that in Saga Slips. You get it in the Changing Gods, I don't know, lab in Saga Slips. But it's like I know this, you can get a character just, in there. I didn't know you can get an item that you can like get a new party member. Yeah, it's an orb. And huh. so every time you, you can talk to a character and tell them to go away, and then you go to the, you use the orb, and that allows you to call another character towards you. So... I was able to do that, but once I left Saga Cliffs, I mainly kept uh, a party of three, three and then four main characters throughout. So <laughs> I didn't change them much after that. But I want to I... talk about the party members because very soon after it begins, when you have Ale- – I call them Allergen and Calistinge. Yeah, that's close enough. Soon after you meet them, you have to choose between them. Because they mm-hmm. hate each other, they're arguing, and eventually they're like, I can't do this anymore. You have to choose which one of us you'll go with. And I chose Calistenge. I chose Algern, so we'll actually get some differences for once. But what I what I thought was kind of weird about this choice is it happens so quickly. I don't really know much about either of these characters by the time I'm making that choice. And I went with Calistenge because she looks really cool. <laughs> and by that by that, I meant that when you're looking at her... You're not just seeing her. You're seeing, like, copies of her around her. And so, you know, her head might be looking at you, but then at the same time, there's a kind of ghost image of her looking and watching someone else, and then a ghost image of her looking down and doing something else, a ghost image of her turned around watching someone else. Because there's something about her where she is sort of in contact with all of the different versions of herself across dimensions. And so you're kind of seeing, it's like a Schrodinger's box situation, where you are seeing all possible forms of Calistenge at any given moment. And I was like, this is cool. I can't, I don't care about the other guy. I want to see what happens with her. I chose Algernon, Algernon, Algern, (laughs) Algern, because he... Because uh, each of them offer you like openings into quests to find out more about you, and his was to the cult of the changing god. He like headed in with them, and mm. he would introduce you. And that's basically I'm more into seeing what they're all about. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and, and he the thing, and he he also has this idea basically where t- his he has tattoos that come alive and fight for him. So like one of the things that because I was able to call in party members once i got to the bloom i was able to like resolve his side quest in a really happy way even though i never used him throughout the game so i just heard about these tattoos in like the end of his story but i don't know exactly what they are but it sounded really cool yeah because i thought you had to stick with who you got when you left sedgers because i didn't know about that item to be fair if you don't have that item you do 
Yeah, and you kind of doom whoever you don't take with you to a really horrible fate if you don't take them with like not just these two, but any of the quest members, if you don't take them with you and resolve their quests or like their uh, backstories. So the fact that you can just call him in, he says, oh, is this has anything to do with you? I don't know anything about your story, but I got this thing that can help resolve yeah, your problems. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happened. And I know Calistenge has her own thing that's near the very end of the game that you can only resolve there. Yeah, but like. One of the things that disappointed me about Calistenge is that even after talking to her throughout the game, I never quite got a handle on why she was the way she was until she decided to stop. Like, I didn't know why she was, why she existed in this kind of in-between state of dimensions. Like, even, I know that, like, she, she was exploring that and she's kind of experimenting and she wants to learn more about her sisters, as she calls them. And to do that, she wants to learn about the data sphere, which is connected to the tides. But it wasn't until the very, very end where she decided to take off a bracelet and sort of choose this one reality and disconnect herself from her sisters. That was the only time that I realized, oh, it's because of a bracelet that you're wearing that you are in this in-between state. There was something about that plot thread and there was something in a conversation with her that i must have missed that just gave me the basic origin story for her i i as, like from what little reading i've done about her character because I, I didn't play with her is is that like she doesn't like the fact that she has connections to all her various forms and versions of her means it's suppress it's suppressing her own ability to emote or think for herself because she's being inundated with the feelings emotions and thoughts of everywhere that she doesn't know herself yeah i get that i just meant like yeah from a writing standpoint that's a pretty important character trait and it felt I don't know if it's poorly written or if I missed something throughout the game that I only realized this core piece of backstory information when she chose to resolve it and basically end her story. Also, the way is probably just the way you describe it, but the fact that all it takes is to – it's not much of a torment if all you have to do is remove a piece of jewelry. Yeah, yeah, because that's basically what she did. Is It seemed like she she was like that by choice. And she was trying to find a way to save her sisters, but I don't quite know exactly what that meant. She's an interesting character, and I liked having her around. I liked her abilities, and I liked her as a person. But her story and, like, the connective tissue between them and, like, the motivations of her and what she wanted to do were all very unclear. So the next potential party member that you meet is the one that we discussed uh, before is Tiber. He's the you get a quest to save his partner in crime from execution, and once that's done, you can get him. He can join your party. Did you take him? Uh, I did. For the beginning, I I was running around with Calistenge, Tiber, and a guy we'll find later named Eretus. Okay. Yeah, Tiber is basically a swashbuckler con man who does dirty who he won he was the guy who fought in the endless battle. He had you as later on you'll discover he had a lover there named I did not write it down. So there's that. And he's basically he disconnected from him and they, he has like a magic ring that can sort of like connect the two across long distances, but he hasn't put it on for a long time. Or he did, but he can't find him, and it's this 
and it's kind of like this low key search for finding out what happened to his lover. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of all it. He's there. He's got, he's got a sarcastic personality. He's always got something to say and he'll stick with you because he needs to get the hell out of Sage's cliffs. <laughs> Cause he's yeah. pissed off enough of people uh, like the, when you meet him, he's trying to save his partner. But what you realize is it's not really for altruistic means. He's saving his partner because one of the things that happens when you're under this torture that the partner is, this kind of slow torture execution, you mentioned before about one of the castoffs creating religion where you eat people to gain their knowledge. That is what will happen when you're executed, is one of those people will eat you to learn everything that you know. And when that happens, they would have learned that Tiber was in on the crime. And so Tiber was like, I need to keep this guy alive, otherwise I'm going to be sold out. Yeah. So you learn that, you know, he's he's the rogue character, you know, the kind of Han Solo, mm-hmm. but a bit dirtier than Han Solo. You know, he's always in it for himself. Yeah. And it doesn't – he doesn't – there's like a lot of texture given to him, but that's basically who he is from beginning to end. It's, in the end, it's just like he learns like a lot of like – I think his his like journey is basically coming to terms with what he is capable of of giving the world. He's yeah. a sort of broken character who thinks who who can't offer much, and it's through his adventures with you that he becomes. Oh no, I can do something. And See, like it's be- interesting you say that because his was a tragic story for me. Ah, because once I got to the bloom. You can kind of uh, the the search for his lover becomes a, an actual quest that you can follow through. Mm-hmm. And what I found out is that basically his lover was searching for Tiber, but then Tiber like gave the ring to someone else, and so his lover ended up finding that person, who then was like, "Yo, I'll tell you where Tiber is, but you have to do a job for me." And kind of did this over and over again until his lover just eventually became this real cruel person like Tiber and eventually it ended up that he just went on a job and didn't come back and like the ring ended up in a dump or something and we have to go and find it and so it was this idea that Tiber through his sort of fear commitment ended up indirectly killing his lover because he never he gave the ring away and he never followed up on it. And so when you get to when I got to the end of the game and I got the epilogue for Tiber, it was really tragic because he, it just said that he he was drinking more and he started doing more and more dangerous jobs until he was eventually caught and he became the guy on the stage being tortured and at that point he didn't want to fight it anymore. Yeah, that uh the ending I got for him it's like we went through that whole quest, we found out his lover died and all that. But through conversation, I was like able to like this is a really poor way of putting it, but have him look on the bright side of things as it were or like come to a better awakening because he in my version, he formed a new military company, a militia company full of dreamers, idealists, hopes and poets and they went out and defended the weak. He eventually died on the battlefield smiling, doing the right thing. Oh, that's much happier. <laughs> much happier than being executed and being relieved. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's because of one of the cool things about the game is just like I like that I got bad endings for people because normally in an RPG, you know, I'm always striving to get the best ending for everyone. But 
in this one, just through the nature of choosing different things and the fact that sometimes things don't work out, it didn't work out for everybody. Mm. Uh, Eratus is the other one you got, and you find he crashed. He's like stole somebody's airship. I love Eratus. Crashed it. And then you basically – his quest is we got to figure out some way to pay this guy back so he'll let him go. It's, and, he's so uh, – he, he is just the most cliched, let's go out for adventure. I am the brave hero. Like he's always – he's the kind of guy who's going to run into a battle without thinking any of it through. He's just like, I'm going to come with you now. It's like, uh, do, do you have to? Absolutely. You seem like you're on an adventure. I'm going to follow you because I, believe, I like adventure. I believe the D&D term is lawful stupid. <laughs> yes, that's exactly him. <laughs> but what's so what's so great about Eratus is that he starts off being that really f- just a fun, strong character. Like he's very good in battle, but his actual story is very is much more nuanced and tragic than that. Like he is a sad character and I love it. Um did you did you spend any time with him? No more than that of quest. Cliffs? No more oh. than that quest because I, I was already like wit I have my crew of people. I, so I don't exchange them. What you find out is that Eratus used to be a farmer until one day he found like a box and he opened it up and he was possessed by a demon that basically consumes bravery. Nano machines. Was it a it, nanomachine? Or? It was a machine demon that unleashed nanomachines. Okay. All I know is it's he was he had a demon in him, and that demon made him glow and basically forced him to do these dangerous things. Like it changed his personality and forced him into these ever more dangerous situations because it kind of fed off of that. And so I feel bad because I got up to this point in his quest where his old self was in my mind space. And I needed to talk to him to, like, resolve something. But I never got a chance to kill myself and visit him before oh. the end of the game. Oh. So, so, Eratus just ended up dying like anyone else does from this demon. Which is that it just, like, consumes him. And eventually, it ended with him falling dead on a, like, dirt road just kind of withered and consumed because he could no longer adventure and so the demon left him to possess someone else you didn't try and kill the demon i did i tried to you can't kill it you can try to exorcise it essentially and i followed that quest like i said up through the certain point when i had to kill myself but i never got the chance to do that before the end of the game oh wow yeah i don't know the specifics he, he is an example He's probably my favorite character in this because he begins as something so very different from when he ends. Like he begins as a fun kind of a jokey character but ends way more tragic. And just the idea that there is a larger, sadder story behind his bravado. I love that. And and I love that the game was unlike with Calistenge, who I feel like had a really interesting story – the game did a really great job walking me through uh, Eratus's story. And th- and I'm I'm sa- I'm saving a I'm saving one character for the end. And like the last potential party member that you can meet is Matt Kina, the White Death herself. And by the time I met her, it's like I looked at her stats and I was like, I am so far beyond you. Oh, really? Yeah, it's just like you might be interesting, <laughs> but 
I also want to see where it's and it's that around that point you realize you can't take everyone with you. You got to choose which party members. This isn't Mass Effect. This isn't the Bioware where they'll let you talk to everyone at the thing. You got to pick and choose who you're running with yeah. and whose stories you'll see the end to. So I didn't actually get to see what Makina was all about beyond the quest and her uh, and her mirror caster, where you can go back in time and like you can actually like change the past with these things they're not just viewing stones to experience it depending on what your actions are those are the actions that actually happened in the past so in her case it's like yeah our entire company died and i betrayed her and it was just like i betrayed my commander and it was like all this heartbreak you go in there and you said okay it may be difficult but i'm going to take a different set of choices i'm going to succeed at these skill challenges and when you come out of it it's just like i know i failed but no she's still alive they lived. I stopped. What What? What did you do? Mm-hmm. And now you got two sets of memories. And she knows, like, one is just an, and the old set becomes a dream because you have overwritten. And that's like when you're in the endless battle, when you, because as I understood, the machine is to go back in there and prevent and reverse time to prevent the other side from destroying their time reversal machine. And that's what the Black Ops mission was. And he failed. Until you went into the mirror caster and make him succeed, you've actually changed. I mean, time. I I actually failed again. So. Yeah, <laughs> there there are there are of course. You, you yeah you there are, there are multiple endings to these mirror casters, and I remember when I failed, I was like, oh shit, do I want to reload a save and do it again? No, no, just keep it, just go with it. We'll get more detail into mirror casting later because that is a great storytelling device. Mm-hmm. And so I don't actually know a lot about Makina. She's she was a cast off who be, later became an assassin known as the White Death. She worked in a company where I assume was part of the Endless Battle. Had this really unfortunate incursion where they where like war crimes happened near a village. And I don't know anything else about her story. I didn't yeah, play with. I I didn't have Makina a lot. I like I had her in my party, but I didn't talk to her much. Her main motivation is revenge against the first cast-off. Because the first cast-off is the one that was in charge of the slaughter that happened in her memory that you go back to change. And Mm. so she wants to follow you because she assumes that you're eventually going to find the first cast-off and she wants to kill that person. We later find out you do indeed find the first cast-off. You do indeed kill her. It does not take. Like all other cast-offs, they get right back up. Oh, I never killed her. Well, I did. She stood I, right back up. They all did. I guess I killed her, but that's that's getting way to the end. I beat I beat them all in this turn-based con, con in the turn-based combat, and then after a few turns, they stood right back up. And he's like, "Oh, motherfucker! <laughs> <laughs> it's turning my own mechanic cool. against me." <laughs> that's really cool. Because, like, yeah, if your cast-off falls in battle, they'll get up eventually. As long as the rest of your party's good. And um, so we don't actually know about it. And this, okay. And then there's Oom, which apparently was not in the original game, was patched in later. Yeah, I never, I had Oom for like maybe all of 10 minutes. And it's interesting because with Oom, you will see what choices affect what ties. Because, and uh, this, he is in your brain space. If you, you, if you want to recruit him, you have to die. Go talk to him in your brain space and recruit him there. So he is always with you. But also, Oom um is like a little blob. 
like yeah. an actual blob, like a round thing moving along the ground with like eyes. Well, no, it doesn't really have eyes in it. it oh, it kind of does. It kind of does. It's, it's got jelly appendages as well. Yeah, it's just a big blob of jelly. And I'm sad that I never actually got into combat with Oom because I would really like to see how it fought. Because you couldn't equip it with weapons or armor or anything. You can equip you can equip certain Numenera to it, like stat boost Numenera. Yeah, but that's it. Like rings, I don't know where it wears them. <laughs> you just stick it inside the jelly. Uh, but uh, I actually do know something of his story. I don't know the details, but he and he is actually, um, and this actually brings up another contrast with Planescape, where there every single party member you can get in Planescape has some has some connection to your past they aren't just a person that you meet along who you eventually learn the story of and and become a connected to he's actually part of like the main character's torment um is the um was an alien was the last creature of an alien race that the changing god found and had a connection to the tide and that's how the changing god learned how to manipulate the tides by torturing this creature and learning the secrets of how it works. And that's what caused all the problems. Oom also cannot talk. He can only like give you like mental impressions as a way of communication. So it does require the, a little um, deciphering on the player's part and the yeah. character's part. But I never played with him specifically. So while it is – if I do a second playthrough, I'll definitely be playing with him just to get that story. I, I don't have any further details. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. And the with him. and the final character is probably the best one of the lot, Rin. Yes, I had Rin in my party a lot until I didn't, and then I did again. I had her the whole t- whole the way through. I didn't get rid of her. Oh man! Oh shit! You missed out. Oh no 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 no! When I say I didn't get rid of her, I didn't like switch. I know what you're talking about. We'll get there. Yeah. Because Rin is fascinating on so many levels. As a character, she is – you eventually – we talked about – we mentioned the slaver. This is the girl the slaver asks you to find who ran away from her because that cast-off has problems with uh, over with like, new, like tides overload and she needs to express her tides to get rid of this internal pain it's causing her. And she does this by basically torturing a child because that has the best effect on for her tide. Because yeah, it's like if she can't focus it on Rin, she's going to focus it on her underlings or it's just going to explode out of her and hurt anyone around her. So she's like, I need this girl to save everyone else. Luckily, there are ways around that because if you talk to other people and you gain control of your tides, you can teach her how to control it better. Oh, OK. I didn't do that. I went back. I to just the... I just persuaded her to give me Rin. Oh no, I did that too. But then, it, but like throughout the conversation, it says like I had, but I need says like okay. Well, apparently, I talked to some other people who, and I gained some levels up in learning how to control the tides, and I used my persuasion. Okay, let's see if we can train you how to control this better. Mm. And I did, and it was at that point, and like Rin was terrified because I brought her to the slaver because okay, they're going to keep coming after us. We're going to deal with this right now. And she was like, wait, where are you taking – why are you taking me back? Because, like, you can complete the quest and just give her Rin. I, on the other hand, says, like, she's staying with me, but we're going to deal with this right now. Yeah. And her story is that she is not from Sage's Cliffs. She is not from 
the ninth world. She is from a completely different world because there are ways you can get to alternate realities, alternate worlds, because there are portals everywhere if you know where to look. And Rin's thing is she acts in her world. She had an argument with her parents and she accidentally stumbled through one of those portals. She doesn't know where she ended up. And then she got grabbed by some slavers that and then she escaped them and she hid in a broken down house. And this is where you come in. And so basically you now have a child to take care of, even though you were born today. Yeah. And and what I like about her is she acts like a child, both in her kind of exuberance about things, in her innocence. Like there's a point later on where you encounter another slaver and she's like, hey, hey, get one of those people and free them. Come on, do it, do it. And she, the way that she, she, she's very talkative with some of the other cast members. Was other, other, uh, other cast members aren't. Mm -hmm. She, I like her talking with Matt Kina. Just because, uh, she's always like, so are you, are you gonna like kill me? What would you do if I hit over here? Or like, are you really this dangerous? And just that kind of pestering that a kid does. I like her conversations. I liked her conversation with Algern, or at least like her her like pre- imposing on our, my conversation with Algern because he will be talking and just huh, and she'll just make herself known and he will change his word choice <laughs> because there is a child present. <laughs> but what I also like about her is she's a child mechanically too, because she can't do shit early on at least. She's really good at hiding, but like she can't use range weapons. She can't use medium. Sure, can't use heavy. Obviously, medium. Oh, I weapons. gave her a range weapon. She barely hit anything with it. <laughs> yeah, I gave her a range weapon at first until I realized that she had a disadvantage in that, and so she couldn't hit anything. And so, like for a lot of the fights that I got into with Rin and my party, I would literally just have her hide every round. Eventually, she gains some healing abilities, so she has some effect. But if you're mm-hmm. if she's in well, your if party, you can give her you can give her ciphers too that yeah. make her effective. But uh, you're effectively playing on hard mode with her and her party. But it's if worth it. Can... But what I like about that is, you know, I get into a fight and I'm basically saying, "Hey, girl, go hide in that corner while we take care of this." And that's what you would want, and that's what you're forced to do mechanically. And I think that's a really cool idea to kind of just. To drive home what it means to have a child in the party. Yeah, it, it did become like when I say like it is a, it is like playing on hard mode. There is an entire uh, there was an entire dungeon I could not beat. It was the children of the endless gate. I could not beat that dungeon with her in my party because I, I it was only later I realized this is she is actual hindrance and I'm playing on hard mode. I've effectively only got three fighters instead of four. And I can only get two thirds of the way through this dungeon. Yeah, I I got to one fight there and got my ass handed to me, and eventually I, I decided to get through that side quest without fighting. I which I, you can do in a I, I is, which is nice design. I eventually had to mix and match it where I got through as far as I can fight it, then I took the shortcuts. Ah, I, but and and I like the fact that there are multiple ways because taking those shortcuts makes. The, the next part of the entire dungeon harder as you've now causing like the I don't know what the hell it is like the eldritch entity yeah it, that... it makes it basically makes the skill checks in the end harder yeah and but with Rin what also she's interesting narrative wise is that there are so many ways to deal with her 
she has, I think, more endings than any other party member. Hmm. For there is a place in Sage's Cliffs called I know I wrote it down the House of Empty Time. It's basically a temporal orphanage where yeah. if these children don't ha- if they don't have parents, you put them into the House of Empty Time, and some point in the future, some people are coming to look to adopt. They will then pull them out of this stasis, and now they exist in this time with a new family. You actually meet one such kids kid in like the marketplace and then there are also other orphans whose house collapsed into the sea and the cliffside district and you can and if you feel like being a dick you can tell the orphanage about them they come and collect them and put them into the temporal place so i i think i did that because you know this orphan has his house destroyed and he's got no one left and i think no i told the orphan to go to this place and that they would take care of him yeah but that that story, like, that feels like you're doing something really nice, right? I'm This kid has lost everything. I'm going to tell him to go to this orphanage and, you know, he'll pop up in the future with a family that cares about him. But in the epilogue, you read that he popped out in this reality and, yeah, he had a family, but he always felt like he was different and so he was always lonely. I can beat, and then I can and top then that. His dad came yep. back. And couldn't find him, and he was forever lonely as well. Because you actually meet his dad later in the bloom, and you can actually rescue him and send him back home. Oh, because if wait, you don't, really? If you don't, he who he's, is his dad? I don't remember, but I know one of the endings is is that the orphans just stay orphans. Period. Because their dad never came back. Oh, okay. And but that, like, that that's that is a cool sequence of events where it feels like you're doing something good. But then when you look at the long-term consequences of that, you're like, well, maybe it didn't work out as happily as you thought it would. And knowing that you can rescue the dad is even better because that's sort of two, quote-unquote, good things. You know, oh, I rescued this orphan. Oh, I rescued this guy. Yay, I'm doing good in the world. But the end result of that is that they never meet each other and they never get reunited. And it's... It's a nuance to your choices that you don't usually see in an RPG, right? Usually, (laughs) you know, in in Dragon Age, in a Bioware, it's like, oh, you rescued this dude, everyone's going to be happy. But this takes a nice, especially with the epilogues, this game takes a nice long-term view of your actions to the point where, you know, not everything works out. And like it it says, I think there's one ending where it's like uh, one of your characters can get in control of the bloom. And like yes. rule it, but it like ends with nothing lasts forever. No, and and I like that the game actually stretches far enough into the future that it re- it recognizes not every happy ending is necessarily a happy ending. I want to stick on the. I know we're like we're just ran- we're just like bouncing from point to we point. We are. We're, we're, we're kind of wanna... focused on Saga Cliffs, though. You know, generally speaking, we're still here for now. Because there isn't just one orphan. There's actually there's like a, there's like three of them: brother, sister, and this girl is our sister. No, she's not. She's not technically bio family, but who cares? She's yeah, with but us the now. Sister is part of like one of the best stories. Yeah, and and the sister, the one who can sing, will tell you this song of, like, four people who, like, a spirit is trying to possess. And it leads you onto this this quest line where you find out, oh, there's this – there's something in Saja's Cliff sometimes possesses young women and tries to impose this new personality on them. And it eventually drives them mad and they commit suicide. And you have to find – 
four such people and Sajus Cliffs and try and triangulate where the source of this is coming in. And it turns out it's a machine of the of the changing god that you have to shut down. So I don't know if you know that at the time. You these are things you learn by talk by talking around and eventually finding the four people. Yeah. So what I liked about this story is it by itself when you're in Sagas Cliffs, it's a really well done side quest where you meet these women that are at different stages of this possession. Like one of them, I forget oh, wait. what her name is. Excuse me, but I just remembered how the girl tells you. is because she tried to be possessed. She said no, and the possession just went away because it had no grip on her. Like it has to have like a certain ability to grip on you, and mm-hmm. it tried to with her and so utterly failed it gave up. And like uh, I forget what one of the characters' names is, but it's like – Losses, loss of self. Yes. And so when you talk to that person, they're like, "Hi, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who I am. What's good? there's this woman in my head." And so you meet her that's sort of in the midst of being possessed, and then you meet another woman that's like, "Yes, this voice was telling me to do stuff, but then I always did the opposite, and eventually it stopped talking to me." And you kind of forced it out. And one of and one of them who you find out is the cap is like the captain of the guard of found the best way because they have a such as cliffs has a very interesting way of having its city guard work in that if you wish to become a citizen you can go into this machine give up a year of your life and it will it will pop out a simulacrum of a guard who will live for one year serving the city and this is how you become a you gain citizenship you give you have to give up a year of your life basically the next year you become a year older but it's more metaphysical because you have eventually find out that it literally takes that year away from you. It isn't like an aging process. It steals a calendar year. And if it turns out to be an emotionally traumatic calendar year, the levy is comprom- is emotionally compromised, mm-hmm. tor- tormented by the horrible thing that happened. And one levy is like this and he wants another year. He wants a different year because the one he got from this criminal was one where he ended up burning down like a house with all these people – with these people inside, including children. And it just – it caused him to be arrested and executed. But he didn't – that, but none of that actually happened because he was offered this job. He, But then the guy sat, looked at his life and he says, you know what? I'm going to go straight. He went, gave up a year of his life, became a citizen and became a shop owner. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, that year – consists of this horrible tragedy but it didn't happen because he gave it up and the levy got it well there's this one woman who is trying to be possessed and says she knows what happens to people who who hear this voice she knows what happens to him so she went to the machine and she says take a year take another take another take another and she basically gave up 30 years until she's past the point every woman has committed suicide by like a decade so she's this 19-year-old woman in this 40-year-old body, and because she gave up so many years, you know what? You're in charge now. You're captain of the guard. <laughs> we don't know what else to do. You know these. You know these 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 uh, levies better than anyone because you are half of them. And see those, the way those stories intersect is like one of the things that I love about this. Like I said before, the human level drama that results from this high-minded fantasy, like. Oh, you're going to give a year of your life for these gods, and there's like this ghost possessing people, which you eventually find out that the ghost is really like 
uh, this guy's daughter died in an attack on Saga's cliffs, and he wanted to try to revive her. And so he ended up putting her consciousness in a machine that would rewrite reality. And that machine is basically trying to rewrite the current reality by imposing this girl's consciousness onto people of a similar body type, women. Mm -hmm. And so it's this really crazy, abstract, sci-fi fantasy idea. But to see it in action, how do individual people react to their mind being taken over? Like, that's where this game is at its best, when it's like, what what am I going to do in relation to this, like, unknown thing that is affecting me, like, bearing down upon me? And we say some, you say some guy, it's the changing god. But you don't know that at the time. No, I, you eventually learn it. You, you, by the end, you learn it. I went through the whole game, <laughs> you know, I forgot about this quest until it came <laughs> up again. Like that, and that's one of the things I like about the end of the Changing God story is that you you encounter this side quest and you resolve it. You could skip it too if you want, but I resolved it and I thought this is a really good, well written side quest about you know sci fi stuff and the consequences of it. What do people? This sense of self. How do you retain your sense of self? What does it mean to be yourself? What does it mean to have yourself imposed on someone else? Really cool, good, heady sci fi thematic stuff. I solved it, I forgot about it, (laughs) until you get, like, towards the very end of the game when, like you said, you find out that that man is the changing god, and that woman is his actual daughter, not a cast-off, his actual daughter. And that's why he strives so hard to bring her back. And it's actually where he got the the ability to create new bodies, to insert his consciousness in, that's part of the science. Yeah, like, the the machine that is Mm -hmm. imposing her on other people... In researching that, he realized that he could impose himself on others. Because he could never accept that she had died. Yeah. And like that, again, a cool way of taking this idea of a changing god who imprints himself and jumps between bodies to then drag that godly figure down to a human level and reveal that it's just a depressed father who's trying to revive his daughter and eventually became so obsessed with other stuff that he forgot about her. Like that's a that's a cool revelation because of how it how it demystifies the changing god. Back to Rin. Yes, that's right. We were talking about Rin. <laughs> I, the thing is, it sounds a lot chaotic, but I, I've come to realize that our, the way we're discussing it is pretty much the way you're, you play this game. You will bounce from quest and then focus heavily on one side quest till you get its conclusion. And then you're sort of bouncing around trying to follow threads of various things. Yeah, and, and this is very much like playing the game because we're talking about side quests and we've kind of lost the plot of the main story. <laughs> and... But then, and then eventually, like, you can put her into the orphanage and you will get, and that'll be her story. That's one ending for her. That's like a certain set of endings. You can return her to the slaver and that's her ending there. Or, or, and I think in the epilogue, she eventually escapes the slaver again, but is on her own completely and a lot more jaded. Hmm. But, uh, eventually, uh, other endings are you take her to the end of the game and in the bloom, you can, which is the place where all the port this is like a living like lovecraftian monstrosity that can spawn that whose body can create mouths or or 
orifices, and in those orifices will spawn portals to other worlds or other dimensions. And here is where where Rin actually popped in. And if you look at like the art direction of what this place looks like, you can understand why a child would be absolutely terrified. It's, yeah, you're in the belly fleshy. of a weird beast. Like, everything's it's all fleshy, and it looks like you're in an intestine. Yeah, and uh, apparently the portal is in a guy's chest. <laughs> yeah. And you don't realize it, but eventually, but if Rin's in your party when you meet him, he says, hi, little girl, we meet again. And she is terrified because she recognizes him. And then, but it's only through the association because this is where the slavers grabbed her. that You eventually learn, oh, her home is in that portal. We have to figure a way to open the orifice. There are multiple ways you can do it. And then you can send Rin into it and get her home after all these hours of building up this relationship and pro- and leveling her up. It's like it's actually a very heart-felling moment. Or you can just not. Like I almost completely missed because I couldn't figure out how to open the orifice up mm. until like the very last minute. So I thought – I was considering just taking her with me into the final act. I couldn't figure out how to open it, but I had a certain item in my possession that That's made how- it really easy. <laughs> That, that's how I did it. It's it's like the cheat code because there is like I mi- like I screwed up a conversation dialogue, which meant I could have done it properly. Uh, so I just did it the quick way. <laughs> yeah, but I like I like that quick way because it pisses off the bloom. Yeah, but the the guy himself is like, oh, okay, well that's one way of doing it. He doesn't seem also perturbed that you slashed his chest open. Yeah, no, he he doesn't seem perturbed by having you know a maw portal inside his chest. He's just like, oh. What's what's that over there? <laughs> and the final two endings is like at the very – it's like if you take her with you to the very end, depending on how you end the game because a lot of her fates actually result, re- rely on your final choice to the sorrow. But before that, if you send her back in, you get the fist pumping mo- – you then go and do whatever side quest you want. Then you enter the final – a fortress of the uh, it's it's a title of a person who's basically the who's in charge of the bloom. The bloom will choose a mortal to be in charge of it until he decide change it changes its mind and they are deposed. Well, that person turns out to be the first cast off, and they knew you were there trying to see them, and they wanted you to do this special quest for them, which had some purpose in the war in the endless battle war. And now that you're here, it basically, are you going to join us or are we going to fight? And I forgot what the conversation is, but we ended up trying to kill each other because <laughs> I forgot what led to that. I wasn't on the changing God's side, but I don't think I was on her side either. But then like after like 10 minutes of this, of I dropped like most of them and then they stood right back up and I realized, oh God, they're cast offs. And this is what I've been doing all game. <laughs> then the sorrow decides to show up and the bloom is not happy about it. Because the sorrow is like the – we actually skipped an entire third of the game. But... We did. Well, I, I want to get to that because that's where the main quest became interesting for me. <laughs> yeah, to understand this ending section, you have to understand what the sorrow is. And to understand what the sorrow is, we have to go – we have to leave Sage's Cliffs, which is like the first well, I 40% think to, of the game. First, to like to wrap up Rin's story yeah. is uh, – you visit the first cast off, you can fight her or join her, the solo shows up, and you kind of get into the you, endgame stretch. The resonant, yeah, the resonance chamber kind of merges all the cast off's brain into a single mindscape of the, this huge multi world 
mishmash of a maze of all these of all these mental scapes coming together and when you're in there you have no weapons you have no abilities you've scat your party is scattered and then in your hour of need because right before you left rin gives you what she calls a god in her in her worlds is very totemic where you get totems which are which when like interfaced with a lot turn into gods of like luck and power and can influence mystically how your life goes it's very shamanistic she gives you a totem of finding things that in your and in your hour of need it activates a portal opens and 30 year old rin comes in to save her childhood hero and what's awesome is she is a badass she has the highest stats in the game (laughs) oh she's incredible she just rocks anyone in her way it was great (laughs) And it's it's a it's a really great closure to her story. I like welling up when she just came in. It's like, yeah, you saved me as a child. You got me connected back to my parents. You sent me home. I got to live a life. Uh-huh. And it's just like I never forgot you. And when I heard the call, I knew I'm busy with stuff in my own home world, and that's a story for another time. But I knew I had to come and save you in your hour of need, which for me was literally twenty minutes later. Uh-huh. But it, it's it's a great emotional moment. And then right before you go and face the sorrow in the final confrontation, she says, I've got you here. You ha- And she, she like shakes your hand, gives you a hug. He says, I got to go back now, but good luck for the rest of it. And then she disappears back to her own world. But yeah, that's why she's the best character. She has like this phenomenal arc that none of the others really come close to because it's actually integrated with your story. Yeah. Like I said, I really liked Eretus's arc, but hers hers Eret- is great because she, like you said, she is your friend. Like Eretus is a good story, but it could be what an happens Andy to RPG. him, yeah. But also, like what happens to him could happen to anyone. Whereas with Rin, Rin is very tied to you specifically because you rescue her, she follows you, you take care of her. She's very. She's probably the closest character that you come to to meet. Like, I don't know how much Allergen comes to like you in the end. Like, I had a good relationship with all my party members, but Rin is the only one that actually felt like she she liked me like me. Yeah, this is kind of what I was like when when people bring up the fact that none of these characters feel like connected to the main story. They're more like, if you help me, then I'll travel with you type of standard we see in western rpgs and like eritus yes he's a play on the convention of certain rpg conventions but that could appear in any rpg rin is something that feels connected to the main story which none of these other characters really do except ohm but we never none of us played with him yeah and maybe and maybe matikina because she's a cast off herself but again, I, I like how like we didn't play with either of them. Yeah, I mean, like I had Matkina in my party for a long time, but like I said, I never really dove into her character much. Granted, it took me half the game to realize I could talk to my oh, party god. members. Oh god! <laughs> because okay. again, like these, are, there are basic like mechanical things that the game doesn't really tell you that I eventually had to figure out on my own or through a walkthrough. Oh boy. But uh, rewinding, we leave Sage's Cliffs and it crash – and basically you're dropped off in the Valley of Dead Heroes, which is uh, another area. 
and it like expands about certain things and you learn it it, it seems like a very self-contained area that doesn't have much to do with the rest of it because everything there yeah. like everything kind of resolves around this cult called the children of the endless gate and it's a really great extended side quest that you end up having to go into this realm of this eldritch monstrosity that hides in the shadows and you have to basically convince this cult leader that this is that they're that everything is not entropy and hopelessness as a way to get out because you are not winning that fight. Well, what I like is don't you don't you convince him of that by using a mirror caster and going back and changing the past? That is one method. That okay, that's what I ended up doing. Uh, another method is to literally just do it in conversation and be as persuasive as hell. Okay. Another way is that if you fa- failing everything, it's time to get your swords and guns out. Yeah, yeah. That is not a fun that is not an easy fight. In fact, I don't know if it's possible because the thing is the monstrosity will just suck you to the edges and then if you're close enough it will chomp your entire party for like huge amounts of damage. I don't know actually how you beat that fight cuz cuz like the two times I tried it was like okay, back to conversing. Yeah. I didn't even try. But it's a and the thing is it's in this like cat it's in this like a uh, endless like tombs that are just endless honeycombs can type into this little console which come you'd like to to go to and they're like they can go up to like five digits and every single one is different or you can tell it take us to the one that's down into the left or down up into the right or up down left or and it's just like oh my god and there's just endless things in there but there are some side quests if you know the if you're out the exact honeycomb to go to you can begin a side quest or end a side quest or figure out some plot relevant information and mm-hmm. just, just the idea of like this endless catacombs because the worlds are endless and they needed some way to catalog all the bodies i had forgotten about that one but yeah i, I like that that was one of the things i used the walkthrough for is <laughs> i was like hey what are the what are the cool tombs that i should visit oh, and I, then there are I, some that there's even an option in there where you can just visit a random one yeah, I and I did that, that a couple times just to see, just and to see what's there. I the, I found most of the ones because outside you can get all these code numbers off of bodies or from ghosts or from mirror casters, and I did that. Yeah, and eventually I forget how, but eventually one of the honeycombs is a gateway which will transport you to the third major area, um, Mel Avest. Well, it's, yeah. I don't know. Melvest isn't really a major. It's smaller than the Valley of Dead Heroes. It's it. The game is divided into four chapters. Satch's Cliff is like forty percent of the game. Valley of Dead Heroes is like twenty is like fifteen percent of the game. Melvest is like five percent of the game, and the Bloom is the rest. Yeah. <laughs> so but yeah, uh, Melvest is where the main quest started to gel for me because oh, I forget. I forget what the sequence of events is, but like you, Millivest is a sanctuary for castoffs where they are protected from the sorrow. More importantly, it is a neutral area where it doesn't matter what side of the war you're on, no fighting. Yes, and so it's it's a place that everyone, at least all the castoffs, go to to just kind of rest and relax and be safe. Like it is, it is a sanctuary, and I forget what the details are, but once you're there. You enter your headspace and you encounter – Oh, the sequence is, is you're trying to oh, find the cast-off who's uh, Mazov, who is 
who built the resonance chamber, and you heard that he was last seen at Miel Avest. And if even if he isn't there, you're hoping someone can tell you where to go. And someone has his mirror caster, which they will give to and the person in charge has their mirror caster who will give to you if you if you succeed at a certain set of quests. And there and it's only one screen. It's a very big area, but it's only one area. There's like you can't go into like buildings or off to other sections of a city like in Sage's Cliffs. But and the purpose of all these quests, they're they're like quick fetch quests or quick conversation quest but the point yeah, is what gets you into the headspace uh eventually after you complete all this she asks you some very personal questions about what you've learned and she's trying to get to see where you are like who you're becoming or who you want to be or what you believe in and only when she has like a certain handle on that she gives you the mirror caster and Going into the mirror caster, you eventually – it's not of Mazoff, but it's of someone who met Mazoff. And through that, Mazoff looks at you and says, you're not this person. Who are you? And then you can explain to him that you're looking for him and then he tells you, well, I'm going to be here. So, And he tells you it's someplace in the bloom and that's where you need – that's where you know to go. But when you come out of it, Melavest is on fire. That's the sequence of events that I understand. Oh, what what is it that gets you into your headspace? Because you don't go into your you... headspace. No, because there was a great moment when you go into your headspace and you basically. I, mean, I think it's after you fight the sorrow. Yeah. Cause... Yeah. So the sorrow attacks, and this is a really cool sequence of events because you have to like you go through the screen and you have to talk to people to get them on your side uh, or rescue them by. Uh, taking down some blockage, you can stop the spread of the fire by activating these shields, while at the same time fighting off these uh, shadows of the sorrow. But then once the sorrow arrives, it is, you know, end game level boss oh, that yeah. kills people in one hit, I, and all you can do is run. It actually shows you the number, because like when you hit something, ooh, I did 16 damage, critical hit, I did 30 damage, It go and it tells you what type of damage you did to it. Sometimes if you hit them with a weapon that's like fire, and your thing is strength, it'll show two different types of damage with two different numbers. It hits someone, and it shows all types of damage with 99.99 on each one. Yeah. It's like, oh, Okay. It's like, I can't fight this person. I'm just, we need to get the fuck out of here. It's luckily it's slow moving enough that you can rescue as many people as possible. I didn't rescue everyone because some of them just fell to the creatures. I couldn't get them out of there. I couldn't convince them to leave or some of them I talked into holding off the retreat. But I got everyone that I could out of there. And then you have to activate this thing, which they don't know what it does. And they're scared to touch it. But it's the last hope. And it turns out to be a teleporter. <laughs> yeah. And so then that's when you enter your headspace. And that's when you talk to the changing god. Because the changing god is sort of sitting in your head now. Or like a, a shadow of him is in your mind. It's, it's and, been labeled as the specter, which I thought was just this is the game's way of getting you up to speed with the basic premise. Yeah, And yeah. it never dawned on me that I should be suspicious of this person because I'm too trusting a person apparently. <laughs> <laughs> because, but I, I like that idea of basically the, the instruction booklet of the game turns out to be your mortal enemy. <laughs> and but you have – what I. What I liked about this sequence is, you know, in the beginning, I was complaining about 
the main quest because I'm like, well, I have to activate the resonance chamber, but why? And in this moment, the changing God is like, you, you want, I want to do this. I want to activate the resonance chamber. This is part of my plan. And you realize that you've been following this main quest, but it's been kind of forced upon you by the changing God. And so all the issues that I took with it, it feels like the game acknowledged those because it basically said, yeah, maybe you shouldn't have been trying to get the residence chamber. The God kind of tricked you. Of course, we, we still didn't quite – and it was supposed to be some way to destroy the sorrow once and for all. It, in reality, the resonance chamber can do a hell of a lot of things depending on who wills it. And it's basically a sort of limited wish machine based upon the tides and this particular situation. You can – because in the end, the final battle against like the, the first one is because the first cast off got it. Like other like the first fight of the entire game is against some sk- that you can you can sk- it is worth noting you can skip every single fight in this game. I don't know how for some of them, yeah. but it is possible. I I never fought the first cast off. I I was on her side up until the very end. No, no, I mean like you can fight literally skip every single fight yeah, in this I know game. What you mean. I don't know how for some of them, but like you fight. There are some scavengers. You either tell them to fuck off or you fight them. And they were there for the resonance chamber. Well, later on, apparently, after you left Sage's Cliffs, another group of scavengers, because they were sent by the the first cast-off through some intermediaries, she has the resonance chamber and is going to act and has been fixing it. And that's why she has Mazoff, because he built it with the Changing God, but now he's on the first cast-off side, and it's this whole mismatch of, we have this thing, we can destroy this sorrow, we can end this war once and for all. Of course, we don't – no one really knows how it works and it gets activated and then one of the craziest battle happens because the sorrow comes into the bloom. But the bloom is this other Lovecraftian eternally living monstrosity and it doesn't like being invaded by the sorrow. In fact, that's why the first cast-off and all the cast-offs with her felt safe in the bloom because the sorrow was wary of the bloom itself. Yeah. But you activate the resonance chamber and says, well, I'm going to take the risk anyway because i got to stop this. And once you and then eventually I think you have to get everyone through the portal. And when that happens, everyone ends up in the multi-fractured mind merged mindscape of all the cast offs. Yeah, the end game. And you get through all this. You pick up your party members in different reality bubbles. Before we get into the end game, I want to talk a bit about the bloom. Yeah, because I love the bloom. Uh, I will admit when I first played this, I get because uh, the Valley of Dead Heroes was so was much more condensed and meal averse felt like, okay, we're shooting to the end game now. And then I get into the bloom. I start talking to the first few people. I walk around and I realize, oh my God, this is another Sage's Cliffs. I was ready for the game to get to the ending and we're in another huge open world area. Uh. And it was like, eventually you get back into that rhythm of the open world area, but it was just that moment of, oh my God, save, quit out. I'm going to bed. (laughs) I thought we were near the end. So what I love about the Bloom is, uh, I, I've said before, what I when I think this game is at its best is when it's exploring the human level drama that results from the high fantasy, high concept fantasy. That is what the Bloom like is literally in fiction. The Bloom is this weird giant, and giant means like I don't know, universe spanning, dimension spanning being. 
and you can live in it. You know, it's got this sort of thriving societies all throughout it, but also throughout it, all these things called maws. And the maws are portals. Like, they will open up and take you to places. Uh, but before they become portals, they have to eat something. And they eat different things. They eat your memories. They might eat bravery. Body they parts. Might, yeah, eat body parts. Like, each maw has a different hunger for a different abstract thing. It could be something physical. It could be something emotional. It could be something ethereal. But the maw wants it and it won't become a portal until it's been fed and so all throughout your time in in the bloom you're encountering people and talking with them about yeah i was eaten by a maw and i lost my legs so i was eaten by a maw and it took my fear away so now i'm never afraid and like one of the guys you can meet someone i think uh, at one point there's a maw that wants to experience like it wants to eat bravery or something and so you can either convince one guy a soldier to go and get himself eaten by the maw or you can like get the essence of bravery a potion from this person and then throw that into the maw instead i think there's also one that wants to eat guilt yeah and you have to choose which guilty person to feed to it there's also one guy who's been super lucky yeah i've been eaten by four different maws what'd you lose I lost half an ear. I lost my pinky finger. Uh, I lost my sense of – I lost my temporal sense of time temporarily and I lost like my hair, which grew back. Was, yeah. like, he's like the – you are the – and he's like the guide for merchant caravans that are going through because he's apparently the luckiest damn person in the mall. And and so I love the bloom because it's – it is all of these characters – are living in the belly of this, like, huge, unknowable, uh, abstract, high-concept being. But they're dealing with the very real, very physical, very emotional consequences of that every day. And so it's it's the perfect environment for what I love about the game, because everyone you talk to is like, yeah, this is how this big abstract thing affected me yesterday, and this is how this big abstract thing is affecting me today. And it, every story is about characters trying to come to terms with life in the belly of this weird being. There's some people worship it as a god, and like they want to get eaten. Uh, others are afraid of it. And are trying to learn about it, but the ma, the bloom doesn't like that, and so they're trying to eat it. So they have machines that they have to activate to keep the bloom away from them. So they're essentially living in a cage. So much about the bloom is cool because it's it's a weird place, but like I said, all that weirdness is distilled into very concrete consequences and very concrete wants and desires for characters, like. It's not just an intellectual game. It's not like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we explore life inside this big dimensional spanning being? And that is cool from an intellectual level to kind of think about what the day-to-day life is for people inside there. But the game goes further and actually explores like the emotional life of these people and what it means for them to kind of have to constantly sacrifice themselves into this thing. And if they don't sacrifice themselves, to constantly fight against sacrificing themselves. And yet, the the Bloom is what I like about the game, blown up into an actual in-fiction environment. Yep. And 
there are some interesting stories here, like the guy who is mentoring him, his younger self before he gets swallowed up by one of the maws and goes on a lifetime of interesting adventures before showing back up here to mentor his younger self. Yep. And I like I like the interaction because the older guy is just like, oh, you'll, you'll learn, kid. You'll learn. And the kid <laughs> is like, yeah, okay, whatever, old man. You don't know. <laughs> And then there's the aliens who have their own spaceship with, like, a semi-permanent maw opening that are looking for their homeland. But they're trapped, but they can't get their ship to run again to get the sensors working because they can't find the resources. So that's why they're still trading with the bloom and hoping to find the correct uh, correct navigation to get home. And just like, oh, and then you're asked by some... Uh, like criminal lord to go steal like their their central core computer. Oh, I like the uh, there's one there's one crashed ship that was like yeah a, that's another one essentially a cruise liner and it was like uh this this portal would open up and it would take people away and so the people from that dimension would have parties on this ship and like go dimension hopping has a, a lock you know kind of like a cruise ship but then. It had just so happened that one time it popped into this dimension and crashed. And so you have – you meet a couple characters that are homeless and living in dirt, but you know their rags are made of silk and are made of like very fine, beautiful things that have just been dirtied and muddied. And one of them, if you help her out, will let you rest at her place for free, which is always nice. Mm-hmm. And you can find like the uh, the digital ghosts of the people who died in the crash being kept alive by the machine who, because of the nature of your person, you can end that quest by just having all the souls sucked into you, into your mindscape. Yeah. That's what I ended up doing. And they, and you can like talk to them and get conferred different abilities on he Like, and this actually happens throughout. Like I got the soul of the leader of the children of the endless gate into my mindscape as one of, as like, as the end of that quest there are multiple ways multiple people you can get in there you can get the daughter of the changing god into your mindscape mm-hmm. as like the separate dungeon access there's a, like a lot of interesting things you can do there and they all and depending on who you decide to, con- to attune to confer stat bonuses and like uh eventually you have to go into the very heart of the maw like the very center of this creature for yeah because that's I- where that's where Mastoff is. Yeah. And it it's a cool sequence because uh, one of the things you can do if you follow a quest is get this blade called the Transdimensional Scalpel, which is a handy tool to have because it allows you to open any maw without having to feed it. You just literally slice it open. It will cause problems, though. Yes, it will cause the maw to not like you. And I assume that then once you get to this, the heart, it will make these skill checks harder. And the, oh, and the battle's harder because it has its own uh, white blood cells, for lack of a better term. So what I love is that when I got to the heart, I was able to get through that whole sequence perfectly. I did everything perfect. And it's neat because as you go through, there are these like tentacles things coming out of the ground. And if you interact with them, you can kind of use your tides to force whatever consciousness is in them out and you can kind of take them over. And that gives you control over different aspects of the bloom for a short period of time. 
And so if you do that in the heart, you can kind of choose a series of actions. Like I'm going to numb the nerves around the heart so it can't feel what's going on. And then I'm going to like restrict the blood flow so that different walls open up. Or then I'm going to open a portal. And normally, uh, if you open the portal, the mob will immediately feel that and send things to fight you. But if you, you know, numb the area beforehand, it won't know, and so you don't have to fight. And there's a lot of persuasion skill checks that you go into this. And it felt like a good climactic moment, even though there was no fighting involved for me, because it felt, it was one of those moments, it was like defusing a bomb, where... Yes, this could all go horribly wrong, but I chose just the right actions at just the right time that it felt like I was able to thread that needle perfectly and came out of it like with two, my intellect increased by two and I got masked off. So like I came out of it ahead of where I began. I had horrendous time trying to get through that because apparently there were <laughs> really? other there were other people down there causing all sorts of shenanigans. And as soon as the white blood cells saw me, they started attacking me too, regardless of whatever I did. And they just kept coming. And they're tough. So eventually I realized I have to take the tactic of fight, 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 run, 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 fight, 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 run, run, just run past them as best I can into the next section and just keep doing that until I get to the very heart. Oh, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> Yeah, there were apparently an entire faction down there that I must have pissed off that got caught up in all this. Because uh, there's, there's like more factioneering that you can go through in the side quests to access certain areas. Like there was a certain point where I just didn't do all the side quests because I just like, you know what, this one's morally reprehensible. Let's not. Mm. I, yeah, I, the uh, the – Telling the slavers about beautiful people. Yeah, it was like once I figured out what that was all about, he says, you know, this is not worth the experience. Let's just. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to go along with this. Also, I didn't feel comfortable, like, sneaking around the spaceship, so I never got the conclusion to that, even though there is an amicable solution for everybody. But the only. Yeah, because that's that's part of the main quest is. It isn't. Well, in order to get inside the, the, like, first cast-offs base. You need to do some missions for this guy named Drogon. No, Dracogen. Yeah, I completely sidestepped him. And I went. Oh, really? I talked to the guards and I realized, oh, there might be a way to do it this way. And oh, because, Dracog- yeah, I followed his quest. And so he asked for two items. One of them is something from the spaceship, and another is like something that can help you with the bloom. And I gave him the one that helps with the bloom. I think, so I didn't do the the spaceship one. At I all. think I did that as well. And it, of course, it turns out the spaceship has a completely amicable way. But I just didn't want to sneak. A, you know, I, I just don't feel like fighting all these people. I didn't realize there was a way out. Yeah. Because there was there was one quest. It felt like a quest that I never activated. And even looking at the the strategy guide, like a walkthrough, it doesn't seem like something that – it's not an actual quest, but it felt like it should have been. I found a helmet from one of those space people in a dump, mm-hmm. and when I went back to the ship, I was able to tell one guy about it, and then he's like, oh, yes, that must have been from you know Bill. You should go talk to, I don't know, Jim over there. And so I went to go talk to Jim, but there was no actual dialogue option that related to the helmet, and it felt yeah, – it felt, you know – I know like what that a helmet quest is. that was never quite completed. No, no, it is. That helmet, you have to punch into the navigation computer, which will then tell them where their home is. And, spoiler, it turns out that the Nine Realms is their – the Nine World 
ninth world is their home. They just didn't know it. So then they all leave the ship. And as they're leaving, oh, by the way, since we don't need this computer anymore, you can have it. Oh. And then you just like, and then you just walk back to the crime overlord and says, okay, here you go. I didn't need those mercenaries after all. <laughs> okay. I was, I was wondering about that helmet because, you know, it felt like an important item. I think you actually have to like talk to that group of traders that's stuck on like the crossroads from the, that are aliens. Okay. It, it, it's a, it's, yeah, there's a lot there. And that's not even getting into like the bug dungeon. What was the bug dungeon? Uh, I know there's the the Murdens. I think crows. The, oh, the crows, not bugs. I I I haven't played this game in a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's the crows, and they have that special vault that has like this this uh, being that wants to eat things. And they lock people in that vault as to feed it because the crows are kind of cuckoo. It, it, there's a there's a lot going on, but. Uh, Again, a lot of it just seems like world building and texture and not really connected to like your main thoroughfare. They're just stories upon stories and they're great stories, but they're not yeah. they're not like I, the last cast off story. I agree with you, but like I said before, that's I think the side stories are the strongest part of the game and so I like I said, I loved the bloom because I felt like it was it was the themes of the game made physical, has a being inside the game, <laughs> which is just a weird, like, layers of meta commentary on itself. Uh, I think all the stories are kind of more interesting than the last cast-off story in The Changing God. So I was totally into them. But eventually, I got, I went forward and I was like, yeah, let's go to the memo viewer, let's go into this base. And that, that brought us to the end game. With the shared mental space of all the, the cast-offs. And you can find pr- all the party members you brought, plus um, Matt Kina, because Makina is a cast-off, so she's there. And you create it, you put it together a new party, and then you just delve in. And then Rin showed up, and she joined, and was awesome. Well, uh, it's, a neat, it's a neat sequence of events, because whenever you find a party member, they're always, like, stuck in an illusion. And whenever you find... You can encounter various other cast-off side characters, and they're all stuck in their own personal illusion. And so you have to find a way to talk them out of it, which is a, a neat moment of character building. Because, like with Matt Kina, you have to let her kill you, or you have to let her think she killed you. So she has to attack you, because she's caught up in this illusion with the first cast-off, and the only way that she'll break out of that is if she feels like she has completed what she's there for. What is it? I think other others can just be talked out of it. Yeah, I think most of the non-cast-off members can be just talked out of it. If you know, if you know them, you can get through to them. Yeah. And then you have to fight a bunch more because part of the mental construct is like the end or sections of the endless battle, and you have to fight your way through. And eventually, but what I what I like about the sections too is you you will have to fight some like actual enemies, but then there are also castoffs in these battles. If you go and talk to the castoff instead of attacking them, you can get them on. They'll like you can snap them out of their illusion, and they will then fight for you. Mm-hmm. Which is just a, a it's a neat series of events, and it's a neat way of mixing up the standard combat mechanics. I, I always liked it in in a combat scenario. When I'd hover the cursor over a character, and it would change to like talk and attack. <laughs> there, I'm actually just quickly checking out this uh, 
I don't remember where this is, but like one of the mirror casters you get, I don't remember if it's in this last sequence or if it's before this last sequence. You actually like get like the final moments of the changing god as the last cast off. Yes, like, that's. Yeah. I think that's an that's a narrative one. I don't think yeah. that's an optional. No, it's not optional. I just don't remember where it happens in the oh. sequence because in that cast off, he is like he activated the resonance chamber as a test. The, the the sorrow found him, and apparently it was on a space. It was like on a high airship slash spaceship, and it was just destroying it. And you have to take like an escape pod, and he ejects it, and that's when you start falling to Earth, and the beginning of the game starts. Like he abandons yep. your body midair. <laughs> what I think is cool about that is you eventually learn that there's a piece of the sorrow within you that's like <laughs> been there the whole time. And so when you went back in time with that Mirrorcaster, you brought that piece of the sorrow with you. Which called Which it. then called out to the sorrow and brought the sorrow to the station, which it attacked, which made the changing god flee. It's like – it's the whole Terminator, like, can you be your own father sort of time <laughs> paradox. <laughs> but – then eventually you'd find it and you, this, you find the specter and you start debating with the changing god over – and the first cast off is there. Metkina is there. Several other important characters are there. And then there's you who in the middle of it have to make this choice and you walk into the last thing and you confront the sorrow at the very Oh, wait. Corner. No. Before that – Yeah. Before – I forgot about that. When you're talking to the specter. Yeah. What I loved uh, – that's before you encounter the sorrow. Yes, that's before it is. You it's talk the, to the room right before it. But what I like about that is – uh, you go through that whole memory, and then you talk to the specter. And one of the things you realize is that the changing god is dead. And this, this specter is just like the backup memory of the changing god. And one of the things you can do is convince the specter that it's nothing more than a memory. That it, and, and it just disappears. But I, I really liked that idea that, you know, you go through the game with the changing god just being this constant presence in everything that you do and everything that everyone talks about you know the changing god is just like his reach is felt in like every aspect of this society whether it be through a cast off whether it be through people that he interacted with and betrayed you're trying to find him and then you just find out that oh he died way at the beginning and like i said with the whole thing with his daughter it's a great way of demystifying the changing god, of just revealing that you were born when he ended up dying. Like he, he hopped bodies and he was running from the sorrow for as long as he could, but eventually you can't run forever. And he just – he messed up. He tripped when he was falling and the sorrow got him. It's also worth noting because I'm now like looking at this final confrontation that – it's like, why are we so important? There are hundreds of castoffs and he makes the – and the specter makes the declaration – I actually want to read this whole thing because it also reveals something of the character of the changing god. Your destiny? You are a part of me. Your destiny was never yours to determine, and the resonance is not yours to claim. He gestures a hand in your direction. Only the last cast-off can open the door. That body and I are the only ones capable of using the power beyond. You are out of your depth, Marielle, who is the first cast-off, and this no longer concerns you. He ignores you and turn ignores her and turns to you. So it's this – so he is – like as you learn, he's just super arrogant and super solipsistic. Like all the people – because the first cast off was right. All the people he created, he doesn't care about them at all. Mm-hmm. No, they were just means to an end and whatever whatever torment they suffered because of, his, of him creating them, fuck them. Yeah. 
He doesn't care at all. It's uh, he turns out to be like just one of the biggest asshole characters in the entire game. It's like like even his daughter doesn't really like him because yeah. he's like just let me go. It's well because I'm and dead. even then he starts off his his goal you know starts off nobly enough like oh no my daughter died Ooh. I want to try to bring it back but like once he finds the technology to change bodies and he just starts living forever he eventually forgets about his daughter until uh eventually like the sorrow consumes the chamber that she's in and like destroys it and so all that's left is her consciousness it's kind of in you being, yeah well, actually but it's when like, you but... confront after the destruction of Melavest you actually have to confront the specter who was the changing god and you actually have a battle of wills with him and one yes, of the weapons yeah. you use against him is the fact of his daughter who he forgot why he was doing all this for. Oh, that's right. I need even then you can use <laughs> you can use her in that battle of wills. I didn't know she was his daughter then. Oh, that that oh. makes a lot more sense at that point. <laughs> that's uh, what you get for rushing. I, I wasn't rushing. I was just like I wasn't. I guess I wasn't looking at the subtext, but like I thought it was just this random girl that was in my mind that I could then I could use her because she was in my mind. But yeah, I like that the changing god is just this asshole, arrogant man who became more powerful than he kind of deserved. And people misunderstand him, or they apply their own hopes and dreams onto him because they don't understand him. Because they've never met the creator, so they just believe he's benevolent when he's not. And it's it's an interesting exploration of faith and like what what drives people to have faith in religion. And that, that whole idea is just we don't understand the guy who created us. We can't see him. We can't talk to him. We can't know him. But we're going to try to intuit who he is based on who we are. And that's not always accurate. And finally, we walk into the final room. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the sorrow is there. And he's – and like this is like you didn't know the sorrow could speak. It was just more of like this malevolent force that was hunting all the castoffs. And it was the only thing that could like permanently kill them. And now we're just having a calm conversation with it. Yeah. Which is like, uh, so what do you want? Like, and it – because it's revealed that the sorrow is doing this because all the changing and activations of the tides is actually very dangerous for like the fabric of the universe. Mm. And we kind of got to stop the abuse of this and the cast. Okay, we stopped using it, except no, the cast off's very existence because of their creation from the tide and their connection to it. The very act of just emoting cause it as you've been doing the whole game every time you your tides shift based on your on your personality choices it causes ripple effects it's been causing ripple effects and damaging the world around you and like one of the interesting examples they give is with allergen and calistench in the beginning just when you crashed uh you wake up and they're having an argument and you know they say that oh we hate each other and eventually you have to choose between them but what you learn here is that when you crashed, like your presence created this ripple in the tides that sort of – you put out negative energy into the world just through existing. And that negativity landed on Allergen and Calistenge and basically caused them to fight. And so you went through the game thinking that these two people kind of hated each other all along. And the truth is maybe they didn't. You forced them to break up 
not through any fault of your own, but just your existence has a cast-off and crashing and sort of releasing your tidal energy negatively affected them. And it's a nice example of how the mere existence of a cast-off creates torment uh, in the world, which is important going into this final choice. Quote, you increase the amount of suffering in the world. Yes, yes, and the sorrow documents that pretty thoroughly. And this is why I've been doing what I've been doing. Like, even, like, the most, like, innocent, most perfect person, the person who ran Mail of Vest and created the neutrality there, she is, like, she is, like, better than Mother Teresa, and even she had to be destroyed because despite all the good she put into the world, her very, it was nullified by her very existence. Mm -hmm. Unwittingly. It's an interesting philosophical question about, you know, what's what's the worth of a person and what what do we put out into the world can the good we do offset the bad we do is the bad we do really all fault if it happens unintentionally but that's important because one of the choices that you have with resolving the conflict with the sorrow is to kill all the castoffs in various ways well one of them is you cut what if we you said well can't we just cut off all the castoffs from the tide yes we can and then they'll all die yeah, that was the that was the um, first castoffs plan. Yeah, and it was like because they thought, no, we'll live, we'll live, and no, the sorrow just says, no, everyone will die. Yeah, and, but another option is you can combine all the castoffs' energy into a single person who will then be unified and and be cut off from the tides naturally, as if you know, like how the changing god was once human. That will be again, except it will be now in the be- per, in the concentrated in one being. And, and that was the changing God's original plan, to merge everyone into himself. And the, the sorrow says, uh, we can still do that. It just won't be him. But you can. But since you're the one who activated the resonance chamber and are actually functioning it, you get to choose who this can be. And you have a few options. You can choose yourself. You can choose the first cast off. Or you can, if you have her, you can choose the, you can choose the changing God's daughter. Mm-hmm. And then there's uh, another option is the stat. We return to the status quo. So you just want to return where? Well, the changing god is dead. So all the castoffs go on, live their lives, and I will go back to hunting you. Yeah, that that yeah, status quo. Yep. <laughs> and I, th- it's like I think one of them is like, can we kill the sorrow? And it says that will cause more damage than anything else. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's like... um, To the point that I don't even think he considers that. I don't think that's a legitimate option. Yeah, basically, if if you choose that one, then you have to fight the Sorrow. Uh, The Sorrow is weirdly cool with most of what you want. Because, you know, the Changing God is dead, so the guy that's been really messing up the tides is no longer an issue. And so the Sorrow is mostly like, hey, as long as you don't do anything to increase the damage to the tides... I'm cool with whatever you want. You want to go back to status quo? Okay, I'll just hunt you all down eventually. You want to merge everyone together? Okay, that's fine. Cause then you just, t- you'll, just tell me who. Yeah, then you'll all be gone, so that's cool too. You want to cut off the, from the tides, which and yeah, you'll, then all, you'll die. all die anyway. So hey, that's cool. Maybe one or two of you will survive. I really don't know. I doubt it, but that's cool too. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like so it's it basically yeah, and then it's only when you choose. Well, I want to keep our affiliation with the ties. That then you actually have to fight the sorrow. And oh, I don't. God. 
I don't know what that's like, if it's an actual fight or if it's a skill check of some kind, because I didn't choose it. I think it's an actual fight, but it is possible. I know it is possible to win that way, but I – because that's how you destroy the sorrow. It's not like a choice you make. You have to actually work for it. But then, of course, you also have the first cast off is there. Metkina is there, including your party members. So they have their opinions on this because it affects them as well. And so what did you end up choosing? So what I liked about this ending is that I was – you're kind of presented with all these options earlier in the game before you kind of know what to do. You learn that, oh, the first cast-off wants to cut off the tides. The changing god wants to merge everyone together. And so you kind of have to choose, well, which of these do you think is right? And then around that same time, you learn that, oh, you can merge everyone into other people as well. Like you could merge everyone into his daughter. And – when I learned that, I was I thought like, oh, hey, that's kind of a neat idea. I don't really want to do that because like, who the fuck is his daughter? Like, hey, I'm I'm sorry that you died early, but you know, I'm going with the first castoff's plan to cut the tides because that affects everyone I know. I sympathize with you, girl, but I'm not gonna merge everyone into you. Then once I, I actually... get to the end, mm-hmm. and uh, I talk to the sorrow, and I kind of realize like the castoffs by the very nature are just fucking up this world i chose i chose to merge everyone into his daughter because talking with the sorrow i basically decided yeah i'm gonna have to kill all the castoffs and normally i would have just cut off the tidal energy but i figured if i'm going to kill everyone if i'm going to sacrifice everyone i may as well sacrifice everyone for one person rather than sacrificing everyone for nobody right i may as Mm -hmm. well bring one person back rather than no one so I I like that the yeah. three options you're given though are the first cast off, the last cast off, or the cause of the cast offs. Like you can't choose hmm. Metkina. I I thought you can. I don't think you can. Because if you do, that's when she goes on. Like I read I read the companion endings, various ones. Ah. I I didn't choose her, but I think if you do, she goes to rule the bloom. Oh, that's one option because like it also depends on what else happened during it because she can try and rule the bloom and utterly fail. Uh, but yeah, I'm actually, I actually want to read this out because it's very important regarding like Aladris, who was the person in charge of male Avest and the sorrow. When you ask the questions, well, what about her? She didn't do anything wrong in her entire life. She never used the tidal surges, which cause all these problems. And his response is the surges are one manifestation of the suffering, but your con kind draws and distorts the energy of the tides at a level you cannot understand. Her passage left lovers squabbling, children crying, and conflicts escalating that might have been avoided. Though she suspected this truth and sought to shut the shelter of Miel Avest, even she had been the author of Invisible Miseries, Every One of You is the Same. And, well, first of all, I like that they, that the game has been authored so that it can say it better than we can. Because that's just that's just actually very very neat writing the way it, the way it flows, but yeah, I just, actually it was really that's the only reason I wanted to read it because it <laughs> says it it says it better than we do, it, and it's just the writing of this is actually just, is very well done. It has to be because most of the game is reading, uh, and unfortunately, I kind of wish you had cut off all the ties so I could find out what happened because I did the <laughs> exact same thing as you. I put everything into her daughter. I mean, it's better to sacrifice everyone for one person than for no one, right? But here's the other thing. The only reason I knew how to save Rin and send her back to her home was because I had to read a walkthrough because I got stuck at some point and I read that and it's like, no, I wish I hadn't read it. 
Now I know. Because otherwise, I would have taken her as a child into the final confrontation. And she would have been right by my side in this final confrontation. And my choice would have been, put everyone into me. I've got a child to look after. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I actually... Yeah. I actually I actually read that epilogue. It's actually really nice in that she you both continue to search for her home but you never find the portal that takes it in. And then one day Rin realized sometime in her 30s she says, "I stopped looking. I don't remember when I stopped looking, but I just stopped looking at some point. I'm perfectly happy with this ways and you and eventually she leaves you because she realizes though she's aging, you're not, but you remain friends for the rest uh, of your days. And aw. I thought I was like, Oh, that's that's neat, but at the same time the the one that she gets and she, she saves her childhood hero, goes back and she has a lot more stuff to do, but that's a story for another time. And it's a, that's an awesome ending too. Yeah, that is awesome. Like Rin gets like a lot of different endings and yeah, even at the very end, I have I had to explain that last It, it seems one. like if you take her to the end, regardless, mm-hmm. uh, th- she'll get a good ending. Yeah, whether it's because she transported back or you actually just took her with you. But the thing is, you can act- if you actually put it into somebody else, if it's the daughter, she stays with the daughter for a while. Hmm. I don't think she stays with the first cast off. Yeah, probably not. But it... it Again, it's just like the involvement and the scripting and the writing that had to go into all these potential narrative arcs for this one character that that it doesn't exist for any of the other companions. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, ultimately, I like that the fact that it just comes down to this choice. This is very bare, and it's like we. I remember. Way like a decade ago when moral choice became a punching bag in video games. God, that was like a decade ago. Yeah, well, I think wasn't that but, because it was always so binary? Yeah, but here, when a game actually offers like a significant world consequence moral choice, it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's like I kept like bouncing through conversation options just trying to delay it. I do really like that when I chose to merge everyone into the daughter, the sorrow says something like, oh, I understand you sacrificing yourself, that makes sense, but why sacrifice everyone else? And you can you can make an argument like, oh, she's innocent in all of this, or oh, she died before her time. Or you can say, I don't have to justify myself. <laughs> and I liked having that third choice because the two choices they gave me didn't really say what I wanted them to say. Like, yes, she's innocent in all of this, but that's not why I'm merging everyone into her. Yes, she died young, but that's not really why I'm merging everyone into her. I'm choosing her mainly because she's there and she's not a cast-off, right? It's mm-hmm. it's more a matter of random chance than it is any sort of grander philosophical idea about her innocence. It's like, well, I want to kill all the cast-offs. And she's not one, so lucky her. And so I like that the game gave me the ability to say that without necessarily saying it. Like, it didn't force, it didn't try to interpret my moral choice. It gave me the ability to kind of duck and say, I don't have to justify myself to you. (laughs) But yeah, ultimately, I like that so much of this game is about, you know, characters relating to these concepts and forces that are kind of beyond them, whether it be the bloom and whether it be the changing god. 
And I really like that in the end, we learn that the changing God is just another one of those people trying to deal with forces that are beyond them. And it just so happened to be the tides and the sorrow. Like there's, there's a nice circular, you know, it comes full circle. Yeah. Right. Like we, here we are trying to understand who we are in relation to this guy. And then ultimately he's just another person trying to understand who he is in relation to the universe. Everyone is just trying to find their place in the universe in one way or another. And it just so happens that the changing God had a long reach and a long influence that meant some people are trying to define their existence based on his. And it's a, it's an interesting look at sort of the, the long tail consequences of someone's life, right? Like the influences that we leave behind and, you know, how other people try to then define themselves based on your influence. Cause even, even after everyone merged into the last cast off, like Calistinge went off and had a really happy ending, but a lot of her life was kind of defined by her time with the last cast off. It's mm-hmm. a, it's a nice story that looks at the, the various ways that we influence people's lives without realizing it and the various ways that the people we think are so important that we like sort of hold up as these idols are again just people trying to make their way through life with influence in one way or another yeah and i'm really glad that i played it and was able to take it on its own terms mm-hmm. yeah it does it does make me want to play uh planescape torment but i I said this before the podcast, like, I've heard enough good things about Planescape being a classic RPG that I've always wanted to play it. This hasn't really increased or decreased that desire, but what <laughs> it did do is it made me very interested in playing uh, In Exile's other game. I know they've put out a couple of Divinity games. And was, I thought, that, was that them? I think it's them, or is that Obsidian, or is that I, someone else? I think that's someone else. Yeah. Divinity Original Sin. Yeah, In Exile did a Wasteland too. Oh wait, and... did it with Laren Studios. I don't know who that is. Uh they did a bunch of games I never heard of. They did Wasteland Two, they're doing Wasteland Three. They did Wasteland the original Wasteland based way back in the day. It hunted the Demon Forge, which was a bad console game. Oh, I played that. Is that them? That game was crap. Yeah, uh <laughs> Yeah, In Exile is like it has connections to other studios and it's founded by Brian Fargo who uh, has, who worked with a uh, black Isle and interplay back in the day. But yeah. Oh, well, okay. I mean, hunted is sort of their attempt at basically a gears of war clone. So yeah. Yeah. You're sense. thinking of, I think you're thinking of like obsidian. Yeah. Uh, who made uh, tyranny. Oh yeah. I do want to try wasteland and too, though. pillars of eternity and the pillars of eternity games. That's the game I was thinking of. Yeah, I believe that's all Obsidian. Well, it's definitely made me want to check out more of this level. I think it's worth saying, I played this on a PlayStation. Like, Mm -hmm. this is a PC-ass PC game. Uh, And I played (laughs) it on a PlayStation. And it actually worked pretty well. Yeah, Um, I I, I remember when it was released on consoles, it was like, wait, on consoles, how? (laughs) Yeah, like, uh, I had to sit fairly close to the TV to read all the text. (laughs) But other than that... Like, there was nothing about the controls that really felt bad. Because, you know, so much of it is pointing and clicking. You do have direct control over your character when you're going through the environment. So you're not clicking on some place to move. You're 
using the control stick and there's like a weird kind of delay you know you push a stick in a direction and you wait half a second before you start moving but that's not anything super awful or awful so i was surprised at how how well of a console port that it was okay like i didn't i didn't i wasn't sitting there thinking damn i wish i had this on pc other than having to sit really close to the tv yeah which you know is not that big of a deal all things considered so yeah Torment, Tides of Numenera. That's cool. Although, I still gotta say, and maybe you can help me with this. Mm-hmm. I understand that the Tides are these this kind of psychic force with the world. I understand that Numenera are kind of the artifacts of the old world. But I don't understand the Tides of Numenera. Because I feel like the Tides and Numenera are two distinct things. Like are the Well, Numenera is also are... the name of the world. Is it? Yeah. Or at least it's the name of the setting. Like, this is an actual, like, tabletop RPG setting made by Mike uh, Montecook. And they made a video game based on the setting because the setting's actually rather new. And it was supposed to, like, in- help introduce it to the world. But Numenera is, like, the name of the setting. Oh! Okay. That explains it. Because I'm thinking Numenera is artifacts of the old world. But I'm like, those the, artifacts the don't entire... have tidal energy to them but if you think about it the art the entire world is an artifact of the old worlds because they keep building up on it okay okay i'll give you i'll give you that that's pretty good i like that okay yeah i was i was just sitting here thinking i still don't understand the what the title means but i'll give it to you i like that tides of numenera numenera is the world okay so that is that's our long discussion of Torment Tides of Numenera, which did not go on for too long. I was worried to be longer. Even though this is probably one of the longer podcasts. I've um, noticed that like huge sprawling podcasts like huge sprawling games don't always result don't result in the same huge sprawling podcast because we understand we have to condense and detail and skip a lot and kind of yeah summarize. we can't talk about every single side quest it's but... not going to be a three hour gone home exp- like extravaganza yeah i mean it it's one of those things where like suffice it to say my explanation of oh i like how these side quests are people you know the personal drama relating to these high concept ideas that's enough to give you a description of every side quest like i don't need to go into detail about every single one and how it relates to that theme that i see in the game suffice it to say it's there and you can play it yourself and see it for yourself one of my favorite side quests you have to drink a drink that gets you so high you can see extra dimensional beings so you can find out where the assassin adversary monster oh, is. Yes. We didn't talk about that bar. That bar was The really fifth cool. eye bar is amazing. You talk yeah. to a character called O who is the manifestation of the letter O. <laughs> he is the only crossover character from Planescape Torment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fifth eye is a cool place. And you want another strange fact? Do you know who Patrick Rothfoss is? Yeah, he's a fantasy author. Yeah, he, he apparently he teaches at the same university as Chris. Uh, he yeah. wrote Rin. Really? Yeah, her character. He wrote it. Like all of her? Her whole arc? I assume like all the dialogue options, all the into her things, I, I assume that's what it meant when I read this little fact on the wiki that says it was written – Rin was written by Patrick Roth, Rothfuss. Huh. 
well, shit, maybe I'll have to go pick up something that he's written because her story is well written. Yeah, I was just like, that's a weird random effect, but that's kind of awesome. Huh. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah. Any other random torment facts you got with us? Oh, there's plenty, but we don't have time to talk about. Okay, like, the... that'll be the next podcast. Is uh, <laughs> us summarizing the Wikipedia article? Yeah, it le- legitimately, this this could have just been us gushing over our favorite moments, and I fear a lot of the time when we get games like that, because like, is that going to be interesting to listen to? Just us regurgitating our favorite moments without any like deeper analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean. Thankfully, there is enough deep stuff in this game for that analysis. But for now... That's it for this year. (laughs) Yes, uh, we've talked about this game enough, and we should wrap up this podcast. But before we do that, we have a rather important announcement to make, that this is likely to be the last episode of the Moving Pixels podcast. We we have been talking about that for... This is mostly a hobby, and... Even though we like doing it, we like talking like this, it's becoming harder and harder to justify it, both as a part of Pop Matters, where everything has been kind of winding down on the game section for a long time, and for us expending the amount of effort to do something that we legitimately like doing, but becoming harder to keep doing it mm-hmm. because of real life. Yes, that's that's one of the things. Podcasting is a young man's game. Or or a rich or a rich man's game. Yeah, that's true. Young young or rich. Um, or if you're paid to do it, that's another. That's a third one. Oh, if anyone should be so lucky. <laughs> so yeah, this will be the last Moving Pixels podcast. Uh, we'll try with, to do like with a, one exception. With one exception, whenever Kentucky Route Zero episode five comes out, we'll be podcasting on it. Yes, yes. Hopefully, that doesn't take more years uh that should be coming out soon though yeah we were this is another thing we were talking before we started recording how it every episode has been twice every between episode releases has been twice the distance between the previous episode releases so between episode one and two it's six months between episode two and three it was one year between episodes three and four it was two years we're coming up on the point where episodes four and five it will be four years it's only appropriate i think they're waiting for that time I, it, they are much in that sort of artist, like artist uh, style circle that I would not put it past them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's kind of irritating. Yeah. So keep an eye out for Kentucky Route Zero. But until then, you should all go play. I almost said Planescape Torment. <laughs> you should all go play Torment Tides of Numenera because at the very least, it's a good game to end on because it's mm-hmm. a it's a pretty great game. Until Kentucky Route Zero, I'll see you later, Eric. What does one life matter?